Donald so. Trump's son makes pizza jumpsuits for Katy Perry, literally. Hoaxbusters call. Join the discussion by dialing 724-447-444. Call ID 90337. Hey, 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 what's going on? Yeah, it's Monday, and it's uh, December the 5th, 2016. And uh, we're doing a Hoaxbusters call right now. So go ahead and, uh, yeah, turn off all your internet-able devices, uh, your distractions, your, uh, yeah, you put your phone on mute, uh, put the cat out, because, uh, uh, yeah, we're live right now, and uh, we are going to commence by, first thing we'll do, we'll go to the chat, see who's here. Turn that off. Uh, the caller guy, Eli. Mahatma Coat, Nino 210, not so Freemason. Nature Never Lies and Psy Girl are up in the chat. Good deal. And uh, yeah, Phil, you're tuning in on the uh, podcast or on a stream online somewhere, or some download file. And you were want to inquire as how, how you can call in. You can go to hoaxbusterscall.com. And at the top, the very top, there is a, a graphic that's linked to the instructions. And then it says uh, something to the effect of uh, call in live. And it takes you to the uh, instructions on how to get to talk to you, how to get to the chat window configuration and uh yeah you're welcome to call in on monday nights that's when we're live recently on last call we had the j some individual somewhere on the uh in the youtubes saying that uh oh well they're talking about myself and john and jay and uh fakeologists and all the same we're some sort of disinformation network well here's the thing about it is that uh if somebody has that kind of uh information that they want to oh like expose uh me or this this network um here's the thing about it is that i have the monday night calls which i'm doing right now and open phone lines. And the neat thing about TalkShoe, so I should put a plug in for TalkShoe. I think it's a great uh, platform in that it handles a lot of stuff in software. It's pretty convenient. It has a 100 megabyte file size limit, which is pretty constrained as far as uh, podcasts go. But uh, if you can work around that, it's... a uh, I think it's a, it's a it's a really good well it's free to do it so you can put your own 
podcast up for one thing and you say, oh, you could title it, oh, uh, exposing the shill information networks or whatever and do your own thing. Or, you know, if you're, if you have, I mean, anything, let's say you're, uh, you're, you believe in scientism or whatever and you, and you, you ran across my audio here where I'm ranting and raving against it and you want to correct the record and set me straight or for whatever reason, expose me as a shill or, Expose me as uh, Robert Ravolt or whatever. Uh, call in, call in. I um, want to talk about talk shoes. Like in the chat window, you could see like right now somebody's trying to call in caller guy Eli, and I will unmute this individual uh, momentarily. And uh, so somebody wants to tell me how the cow ate the cabbage or whatever um here i am uh you can people you have witnesses to say hey i was on and and chris never unmuted me i never got to expose them for being robert raidbull uh see now it's like well you can have proof you have you have the chat transcripts which i post and then you can get access to those, which I have a link to, to go to talk shoes, which I have no control over. So they're there. I can't edit them. I can't edit you out. So you have proof. I, I try to call in and I, here I am in the hoax. Here I am in the hoax, but it's called chat on talk shoe. And, 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 and I try, I try to call in and he wouldn't unmute me. He wouldn't let me talk. Yeah. Proof that I've, I've I'm shutting your information down, but, uh, no, I don't do that. I, 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 uh, I let people come on the call, and uh, and depending on what's going on, I usually bring you on the call, and you can stay on the call, and you can it, it, you can engage in the uh, freeform discussion, which uh, which I'll open up here in about uh, after I get done rambling, uh, which I I don't expect to be going on too long. Uh, so yeah, that's it. That's how I deal with anything out there that's. Um, Along that order, that's what I've decided to do. So, you know, okay, yeah, you have uh, a beef with anything I say, or you, you're you got some information, or you're suspicious that some kind of a, a shilling operation is taking place here. Yeah, call in and expose it. I think it's your duty if you're putting information out there elsewhere, and you won't, uh, you know, take advantage of the call. Then, I mean, I. What does that say about you? I mean, uh, so, yeah, I just leave it at that. So I don't, if you listen to the calls, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I don't go into all of that because it's a big waste of time. I I know there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of material, putting stuff on the YouTubes, putting stuff on the podcast and all that, and they say a lot of different stuff. It's like I just go by what they say. I don't feel compelled to go into their background to see if they're associated with who they're associated. I just listen to what they say. If I agree with it, I don't. I do agree with it. If I don't, I don't. I may link to some people's sites or YouTube channels. Doesn't necessarily mean that I'm 100% agreement with uh, ABC News. I just posted an article about uh, C.J. Dyer sent it to me about North Korea missiles are fake. Analysts say... North Korea tried to flex military might with an exaggerated parade on April 15th, just three days after it admitted that its missile test had been a failure. But an a- analysts now say that the new intercontinental 
ballistic missiles on display in the meticulously choreographed parade were nothing more than props. And, uh, yeah, you can go hoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoaxhoax
I think I very early on took the position that this is some kind of a psychological operation. Uh, it came by way of Lit- WikiLeaks, was, which is very dubious, suspicious organization in their own right. And then you got to look at, too, they're getting a lot of uh, attention in the so-called alternative press and the mainstream press. So that is a red flag for sure, because even though I do believe that there are people that are inside the workings of the machinery called the government that are so-called whistleblowers that they'll put out information... I do believe that exists to some degree, but if they were to put out something that is really damaging or really pertinent or something like that, you probably would never hear anything about it. You know, you would have no clue what, you know, it might make it into some obscure blogs out there or news sites or something, but it won't be given any attention in the alternative mainstream. That That's the way I think it but something that's given attention by the mainstream is something's up. Something is up. And uh, then, you know, it's one thing to see it appear in the media, but when it's given kind of consistent attention being focused on it, then that's when it really kind of sends up a red flag. Like this North Korea nukes are you know, parading around with fake hope nukes. I am going to guess that what will happen is that, okay, this is put out into the media and then fast forward into the future. It'll be as if this never happened, (laughs) you know, like this never article never appeared. These analysts never said this, you know, not that it will be a retraction or anything like that. It'll just be business as usual. Next time, it won't be too too long before they're putting out on ABC News that Kim Jong Un is threatening uh, Taiwan or whatever with nukes. So the ba- the basic premise that he has nukes is not going to be challenged by putting out an article that's pointing out that they're fake. But you know, I think that's the way things work. It's kind of is that a limited hangout? I don't, I don't know if exactly a limited hangout, but it, it's a, uh, it is a sort of lie by omission. And it's almost like, oh, well, here we told you. But then uh, there's also things that are communicated by what they don't say. You know, it's kind of lie by omission or whatever. It's like, oh, well, what are the greater implications of that? Or... So this warrants a further investigation. Maybe their whole missile program is is a fraud. But it also, when you're thinking critically about, okay, just the idea of nukes in general. So here's here here is ABC News pointing out an analyst position on their their rockets and saying, oh, these are fake they're ridiculously fake look at you know and, and and anybody that knows what they're looking at on these things knows it's fake so that there's a lot in there i mean in that article when we we start talking about the nuke idea or the concept of of nukes which i've 
which I've brought up before several times. I don't believe that nukes exist. And there's a lot of good reason for believing that. Uh, can I prove they don't exist? No. And I can't prove that uh, there isn't a, a colony of uh, giant glow-in-the-dark uh, grub worms inside the core of the moon. I, I, I can't prove that that doesn't exist. I can't prove that nukes don't exist. But I can point out that the evidence is uh, fall short. And then it came out of a movie studio called Lookout Mountain in Laurel Canyon area. Uh, admittedly by uh, this documentary that came out. Well, it's also Wikipedia and everything. Else. Lookout Mountain. You look up Lookout Mountain and, and you'll get the scoop on that. It's a full production studio that was run by the Air Force, and that's where all that footage came out of. And they and they employed Hollywood people and and Hollywood special effects people. Uh, so that that is uh, to me, it's a, it's it's significant. And uh, well, here's North Korea parading around with nukes, so called rockets and then you have analysts saying that these things are fake well here's the thing too what this what this communicates i think you read between the lines here or or if you think it through or critically analyze it it's okay so what that says if you can display a rocket that is technically correct in all its details and you put that on display, like in, uh, let's say, as part of the United States' uh, so-called arsenal. And we have these in silos and maybe they move them around trucks or whatever. And say they're just technically accurate in every detail as far as what they're supposed to be. Does that Would that then make them real? No. They have the appearance of being real. Just like something can have the appearance of being fake by having technical inaccuracies like like the oh this nozzle is not supposed to be here if it was this thing wouldn't be able to fly they can tell by looking at it if they know anything about rocketry so by you can draw an it you can draw a conclusion that well if it is technically correct then uh it, it can pass as real and i think that's what we have in our so-called arsenal is we have rockets they may even fly i don't know but are they really nuke nuclear? Uh, I don't know. That's the that that begs the question, doesn't it? But uh, well, that's just crazy because somebody would have spoke out by now. Well, so how long have, uh, how long have North Korea been doing their dog and pony show? And this is the first time I've heard anything come out from a so-called official source that's calling them out as fake. Now, I linked an article that I'd posted uh, a while back from Mr. J. Dyer pointing out that, oh, look at their whole operation. And they had a series of photos that was taken in North Korea. And, and it's like, yeah, man, this stuff looks really jack leg, B movie caliber bullcrap. And they're standing around this. Uh, looks like a computer terminal, but I mean, the, the stuff looks obviously outdated by many years. They said this is their crack, uh, 
hacker team or whatever. I, I, I can't remember all the specifics, but it was, yeah, it was really absurd. And this is being passed off as real, like they really have something going on over there and they're really dangerous. And uh, it's, it's really not, it's, it's really laughable when you look at it. You have to take a look at it, though. I mean, there's a link to it at hoaxwatcherscall.com. But, yeah, uh, so, so, uh, well, you ask yourself, like, well, what proof, anyway, is there that nuclear bombs exist? Well, we have the footage, right? But then the footage came out of a movie studio. So, what does that mean? Uh, I, I conclude by taking that bit of information and other bits of information and then actually examining the footage where you have an explosion and then there's a camera obviously in the scene that's capturing the action. And then the camera, not only does it not move, but it doesn't even quiver or vibrate at least noticeably at all. So that's a pretty good indicator that you're looking at something concocted and fake. Because I, I don't believe that that is even possible. Even if you put it in some kind of protective housing or something that, that would, you know, you, we're talking a we're talking a nuke bomb here, right? Uh, incredible forces and and they don't uh, cause the camera to even shimmy or vibrate. So that's that's something. Um, among other things. Oh, there's footage out there too, like plenty of it, where you see the bomb go off and then there's like an immediate sound effect of a bomb like boom it blows up at the same instant that you see the explosion and it's like well doesn't sound take you know half a second or so to propagate out you know because the speed of sound is not the same as the speed of light is faster than, than the speed of sound right uh, in every other instance of an explosion that it's taken from a distance and or or a thunderbolt of lightning or something like that, you'll see the lightning and then you hear the report, you know, you hear the sound, you know, a second, two later. That's because sound travels slower than light. Uh, it, it's well understood. It's, it's common knowledge, you know, that that's why that happens. But... With that understood and common knowledge, it doesn't matter. They could show you something. Oh, here's a nuke bomb where it, it's a direct violation of the well, laws of physics, where you have this, you see the explosion and the sound at the same time. And, uh, but, you know, it's, that's the official part of the official record. And that's an absolute fact that that is a part of the official record. And you can confirm that. And it's an absolute fact that that is not possible according to the laws of physics. So make of that what you will. I don't know. That's how you, that's, that's my approach to a lot of this stuff. Uh, so we got this, uh, guy that shows up at, uh, Comet Ping Pong with a gun. And you hear it on the, on the news, right? And uh, so I'm looking today at it again, and uh, it looks like it has made front front page news, at least on the mainstream websites. It's not really being played up tremendously, but it is there on the front page. It's like a fairly major story. 
the headlines go something to the effect that oh this this gunman motivated by fake news so that's the emphasis is that this fake news is causing crazy people that might be kind of half unhinged to do bad things to real people. Real people are getting hurt. And uh, I brought this up before, and I was talking about with Jay. I was just recently talking about it with Tim. Uh, I got a link to that at hoaxbustercall.com. And uh, I've been pointing out, it's like, well, here's what it looks like to me. It looks like there are setting up these people, because like, uh, you know, we've had these things before. We talked about this before. We had, you know, the, in England, they had the Jimmy Salvo thing that was like along the same lines, you know, with, with involving children and stuff like that. Uh, he posthumously gets uh, accused of it. All this stuff comes out after he's dead, you know. Um, we had the Franklin cover up. They had the guy go to jail, but he didn't even go to jail on those charges. There's all this stuff, you know, coming out. You know, people testifying and all this stuff that, yeah, there was this pedophile ring. There was records of it, actually, that was in possession of, of journalists, from what I understand, that had, like, credit cards and stuff where people were going. They, they were from this company that was actually running a pedophile ring of boys going into the freaking White House. And they had records and shit of this. It was, like, proof. <coughs> Did anybody go to jail? No. Not for that. The Larry King guy that was probably one of the ringleaders, all this stuff, he went up on charges of some kind of money p- running a Ponzi scheme out of the Frank Franklin Federal Credit Union or something like that. Uh, so this is not, this is not nothing new as far as that goes, but, uh, oh yeah, Sandusky went needing to go uh, to jail or the same thing. Uh, yeah, like, like one guy, like how does like one guy pull all this off? But anyway, that's supposedly what happened. But anyway, but this, but this particular story is unique in that we have it out there on the interwebs, and then we have this specific business and these and these specific specific individuals identified. And, uh, you know, last time we talked about that, I mentioned that before. I said, yeah, this is a unique in this respect. This is like you have, so, it's, it's like, it just, just reeks of a setup. And uh, lo and behold, here we go. Oh, somebody was reading fake news and they got, they got uh, an idea that they're going to go down there with a, with a gun and uh, then it says he says he's going to launch his own in- investigation. But if you think about this, it's like, what the hell would anybody hope to accomplish by doing that? Except for to help to establish the idea that these people in this business are victims of harassment and everything else. So now it's kind of reached a whole different level, hasn't it? With somebody showing up there with a gun. But, uh, uh, yeah, interesting stuff about this particular individual. This Edgar Madison Welsh. Uh, he's got an IMDB profile. So he's got some affiliation with the movie making industry his dad is a screenwriter uh 
he writes scripts for like these crappy uh, B movies and stuff. He's in the industry. So yeah, it, it, interesting pedigree on this cat, and uh, kind of falls right in line with stuff we've talked about here a lot. Uh, Omar Mateen. Yeah, we just kind of went through this as the same routine. You know, it's like we pointed out over and over again. Um, I was talking to John earlier today, and he was saying he ran across this article where this guy's talking about all the actors that are involved in these shootings, and like he's he's questioning like what's going on here? Like why do these actors keep popping up? Like what is what could be the meaning of this? And and like I was telling John, I said I have. I, I had the idea because I was thinking about I need to do a video where I put together all the uh, actors that have been involved in like a Sandy Hook and uh, and all these uh, different shootings like Omar Routine and then the uh, uh, Aurora Theater shooting actors involved in that actors a whole bunch of actors in Sandy Hook a whole bunch you know and then there's actors though you know the, the the Orlando nightclub shooting the guy the the supposed shooter is an actor. Uh, like the witnesses, actors, like the Louis Barbano guy talking about how the bullet was sticking five inches out of the guy's leg. Like he thought, I think in, he was doing a little ad lib and he, so the actors like to do that. Like they ad lib blind sometimes, but he, he should know what the hell he's talking about because there isn't any, unless you're talking about some kind of military round that would be shot out of a, uh, some kind of no, what uh, it he. The only thing I could figure is he, he he thinks the whole casing and everything comes out of the gun. Like that's not really what happens. If any, you, don't, you know anything about firearms, you know that the it's just the the uh, there's a lead there's a lead tip in the uh, cartridge that comes out. The cartridge stays is ejected from the gun and falls down. It doesn't go with the projectile. But um, but he apparently didn't know that and was ad-libbing and talking about it. He saw that it was sticking out of somebody's leg five inches. And it's like, no, no, dude, you didn't. You you definitely didn't see that. It wasn't a bullet. Uh, but he swears it was a bullet. But he's an actor. IDM, I, IMDB listing and everything. So uh, the WDBJ shooting, the... Supposedly, this this woman reporter, young female, got shot, killed, and her cameraman got killed, and then her dad's an actor on Broadway. That too. Um, man, I'm just just thinking off the top of my head all the different examples. There's a lot. So putting it together in a YouTube video and then titling it "Actors Under Attack" or something like that, in mass shootings or something like that kind of sensationalize the headline and make it, you know, and then, uh, but see, I see what I I have to make it clear that I'm suggesting that these are fake stage notes events because I I think that, you know, people look at it, they would say, oh, well, that's quite the coincidence somebody found out there. Nothing, nothing more to that than sheer, sheer coincidence, sheer, maybe if anything would be kind of a, a, a disruption, maybe in the, in the, in the quantum foam or something it, it just like these things kind of center around actors just for some bizarre interdimensional insane reason 
that has, you know, so that way you can separate everything from logic and go about your merry way. Oh, man. But, uh, oh, and then we had another shooting at OSU. Well, that's the one where they called it a shooting, but then you go read, and then the guy ran over somebody and some couple people in his car and then got out and stabbed somebody with a knife. But they call it a shooting. So that's, that's very interesting. And then I put a post that uh, Jay sent me a video where, like, on the, in 2015, it says it was published in September of 2015, uh, Ohio, Ohio State University Administration Planning Surviving an Active Shooter. So they had just put this out last year. Talking about it, talking about it. And what happened, it really happened for real. Except for it wasn't a shooting. But it was a shooting, according to the report. So that's that's odd, isn't it? But somebody was on the scene, apparently. And this one particular individual was being interviewed. And some dude was there with, with his cell phone. And as soon as that guy got done interviewed, because he was supposed to be no knew of a victim at the OSU and that they were interviewing him and like he said his girlfriend was in there blah 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 and uh he's kind of joking and then there, there was a dude on site that was filming him as well i guess with his cell phone and he starts asking him some like real questions and then you see the guy just totally change his demeanor and get really uptight. And I'm not going to talk. I don't want to talk now. Well, you just got through. I mean, he didn't say that, but it's like, you were just on camera, dude. Now you don't want to talk. Well, haven't you heard of crisis actors? You know, what I mean? oh, I don't want to. I don't want to talk. So that's interesting. His reaction. Does it prove anything? No, but it's just really interesting. Um. Yeah, and it's uh, uh, if this is all re- if that's all bona fide and real, then that's that's really cool that somebody's there on the scene and that's aware of the crisis actor and the hoax stage. Of course, in the OSU, there was a drill going on at the time, and they talked about it in the news reports. Yeah, we had a drill. That's why we had such an excellent response time. It's like, oh, well, where have we heard that before? Well, every single one of these high-profile shootings, that's where we've heard it. That would be another video to put up. Ah, oh, man. Yeah, I just... Well, I guess when I get around to it, I could do it. But uh, I think that would be a real good video to put up just example after example after example after example after example of... Yeah, we were running a drill at the same time. And, and in many instances, it's like the same scenario. Like, we were running a drill of backpack bombers at the Boston bombing at the same time, just coincidentally and happenstancely. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And that's how we had such an excellent response time. And uh, Aurora shooting. I, I, I'll, I'll put in the call, if I do this video, I'll put in the call where I made to the university there that was, uh, oh, they were sponsoring a drill of a, the- of a shooting in a theater. And the guy corrected me and was saying, "No, it wasn't a shooting. It was, it was a it was a rock concert in a theater." 
in in the theater. Uh, oh, 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 okay. Oh, so no, so, so it's not exactly the drill they were drilling for, but pretty similar, and, and at the same time, and co- coincidentally enough. Nine uh, eleven, same thing. Seven seven, same thing. Drills, 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 going on at the same time. What was it, Vigilant Guardian or something on 9-11? And they had a bunch of drills going on, the hijacked planes and everything. The, the scenarios that were part of the drills going on at the same time. Uh, uh, 7-7 bombing, you got the guy on TV that came out and said, yeah, we were, I'm part of Visor Consultants and... He's running a drill of bombs and going off in the subway and on buses. At the same time that it happened for real. <laughs> what are the chances of that? <laughs> um, yeah, what else comes to mind? I, I don't know. That's enough examples, ain't it? But uh, here we go again. Here's a, Was there drills going on at uh, Comet Ping Pong? There was something going on, according to some reports I heard. They allegedly took the traffic cameras down just like a day before that happened or something like that, or two days before it happened or something. That, that could be coincidental too, right? Everything's just coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. Um, oh, man. Yeah, so this guy's an actor. Or he's in in movies, and I was thinking about that. It's like, what? Okay, like in this instance, now Omar Mateen, like there was some footage of him where he's talking, and that's that kind of filled in to like kind of where he's coming from. I suspect that it's going to be the same with this guy because why else do they need acting skills unless there's going to be some forthcoming footage that's going to be him on film talking about. And then that will allegedly be given some insights into his motives, but it'll be an act. It'll be an acting job. This is acting job this guy got. That's that's what I think we should be looking for. Because otherwise, why use why use an actor unless they just had an actor handy? Because they said he got involved in some kind of pedestrian accident like a month before, and maybe that he was on under pressure by the so-called authorities to participate in this thing. Who knows? But it's just interesting that his dad is all up in screenwriting. That he's involved in movies, and we have all these other examples out there too. Um, yeah, but, uh, we still have, and what is this today? It's the end of, we're coming up on the end, wrapping up 2016 and alternative media. There are still freaking knuckleheads out there poo-pooing this information. (laughs) Oh, this is no, that's not everything. That's everything is fake crowd. We don't want to associate with them. They, they say everything's fake. It's like, uh, ah, here's another example. Not the guy's an actor. Nothing to see there. So I guess maybe this article John ran across was a way that they're some. I mean, it's going to people are going to eventually this information is, is is slow it's like it's uh very slowly getting some kind of traction out there but not very much uh, the whole fakery idea but then i think it's maybe getting enough exposure to where they have to put 
some kind of damage control articles out about like, oh, here's an explanation of why maybe all these actors are involved, other than the most plausible explanation is that actors are handy when you're, you know, conducting these uh, hyper-realistic training drills, you know, like these organizations point out strategic operations and stuff like that. They said, oh, they, they do it for, it's a Hollywood special effects studio, and we work with the military, we work with law enforcement, and we put on hyper-realistic training. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, we, you know, we, we, this is what we do and, uh, we use crisis actors, we use amputee actors and blah, blah, blah. And then the, and then, then the fact that, uh, it's not against the law for the, uh, government, even they recently even announced it. Oh, we got rid of the, uh, darn, uh, uh. Why don't Smith Month Smith Month Act? I always forget that. But anyway, yeah, that. But then, what was it to even to begin with? Me and John talked about it. It's like, I mean, that was pretty limited. And even to begin with, it said the State Department wouldn't be involved. So I guess now the State Department can get in on the act. But what, who was conducting all these psychological operations before? With the law, it could be that you could come out and say. Oh, the State Department, but it doesn't say that the State Department can't contract with the Strategic Operations Group, does it? No, it doesn't say that it can't. That's the utter use, uselessness of this thing called law. It doesn't, it's, it's full of holes. Everything is full of holes when it comes to law. Now, don't you try to, you know, weasel out anything, but I, I mean, I'm talking about when it talks, when we talk about the authorities themselves, they, and they don't have this, the, Law doesn't apply is what I'm trying to say. But um, so it really doesn't matter what legislation gets pumped out there. Uh, only insofar as it's going to affect you and me because we have no, yeah, we, we, we have no out. We have to just put up with whatever. But, um, well, yeah, there's that. Da, 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 da. Who's on the call? We got a couple of caller enters. Yeah, I'm gonna just go over a couple more things, and we'll take uh, caller enters. And uh, I put it up an article. I mean, a YouTube video from uh, Red Silver J. Obama deported more immigrants than any other president in history. And I posted this up. I ran across because I was trying to figure out, uh, and I thought it was interesting. I didn't post anything up on there because there wasn't anything to post up there because it was the nature of the inquiry that I was getting into was about, um, okay, here's the, here we're at the end of uh, Barack Obama's two-term presidency. Uh, now, where's all the retrospective stuff that should rightly be out there, right? Where the pundits and the political analysts and all the people out there on the on the alternative press – or the main street press uh, do a, a pre and post. Cause remember all the hype with Obama. And then he was like, literally not making this up. He was literally called the Messiah. Like he's coming to fix everything. He is like a, he is like a reincarnated space God, like L Ron Hubbard or whatever, just everything, every accolade he can receive was heaped upon him. This dude that just came out of the blue, he had some, he, he had some supposedly good speech that he gave at some kind of commencement thing. 
And that's what he was known for. And then based on that, like, oh, he's going to be he's going to be a great president. Everybody's going to love him. He's going to fix everything. Uh, our our burrito coverings and everything. Like he, he's going to do it. He's going to do it all. Uh, uh, what happened? Like, what do we? Where's all the retrospective stuff? You know, looking back and reflecting. Okay, did he follow through on anything? What 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 about it? I couldn't find really just very sparse. I, I ran across one uh, RT man on the street thing where they were questioning people, which I thought was really good. I should have posted that, but uh, I lost track of it. I'll go back and find it, maybe post it. Yeah, what do you what do you think about Obama and his legacy? I mean, did he, did you feel like you like we're better off after eight years and blah blah blah? Like uh, you know, and then that then he then the guy just points out he's got this sheet and he's, he points out that you know all the stuff that he didn't do he didn't close guantanamo we stayed in the wars you know he, he, he actually increased all the stuff that you know what he ran under saying he was going to get out from under the wars and he's going to uh close gitmo and he's going to stop the interrogation and the, the enhanced but no he ramped it all of it up just pointing all that out to people and they said oh yeah that's right i don't well, i don't shrug my shoulders and walk on yeah Maybe the next one will be better. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. Well, whatever. I guess I'm, I shouldn't even be talking about it because that's not important, I guess. But I think it would be of utmost important, right? Especially if you're going to vote again. So what what did it do for you last time? That'd be a great question, wouldn't it? But no, no. I, I think that's very, very telling that there is not a recap of the last puppet in chief. Shouldn't there be? Shouldn't there be more? At least some emphasis on it or examining it. It's like no, nobody cares. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's almost like that that whole pageantry and the hyperbole and the sensationalism and stuff and everything that he was going to do and how happy about it. And then he's like, then it's like not too long ago, they were talking about little kids are crying because Obama's not going to be president anymore. He's not going to be president anymore. Where's Obama? I like Obama. It's like crying and that was a made viral video and they showed that on the news and like, oh, I see. He was a good guy. It's like, was he a good president? Like, what's his record? What's his record? Nobody talking about it. We don't want to talk about it. Oh, okay. Then shut the F up. No, we're going to talk about the new guy, the new guy now. And then, like, Obama even said that. He said, I think the voters are going to want the new car smell. It's like, what was he talking about? So he's kind of trivializing, trivializing the whole presidential thing, isn't it? That people want that. It's like, sounds very trivial, right? Well, no, because it is. It's really that superficial and, and nonsensical. It really is. So he was right in making that association. Uh, yeah, I just want something different to look at up there. You know, it's like, well, I guess that's all you can hope for, right? Ah, oh, man. It's just, just such a fraud. It's a major, major fraud. The whole thing. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, there, there you go. I mean, that's another example of why it is so ridiculous. No, we're not even going to talk about his... Did he do anything he said he was going to do? Did he, try, uh, did he make attempts to? I mean, is there a record of that? Can we point that out? And it's like, no, he went balls to the wall. <laughs> uh, 
full full tilt on the war war and dropping drone strikes on people and stuff like that. That's what he supposedly did and all that. It's like it, it's like Bush uh, to the power of two. Like he doubled down on everything Bush was doing. So it's like I I don't know. But he he ran against Bush. But that, see, um, but you know here's here's the. Uh, Here's the story about how he he deported more people than any other president in history. Yeah, more immigrants than his, in history have been deported under Obama. And when I was looking for this re- retrospective stuff, there was quotes of him saying that and he sounded just like Trump. Oh uh, yeah, we need to get the uh, we need to do something about this immigration. It's bad, and, and apparently he has been doing something. He's been he's been deporting illegal immigrants. More than any other president in history. Um, but it's just, the absolute insanity of it is like, now that we got a new puppet in there, like, there's all these people that are now upset. And they didn't know that this was already going on. Uh, they didn't know Obama's. It's, it's just. So preposterous, man. Watch the video. I think Red Silver J does a really good job <laughs> pointing it out. Oh, man. It is just so out of side of reality. Now, uh, you, you could go to any of these. It, it just jams up the podcast. O sphere, the media sphere, the 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 talking heads, the political pundits, the commentators and stuff. And did they? You have you heard this point? That they've heard this pointed out. I I got this from Red Silver J. You know, it's like is any uh, any talk? I don't know. I don't watch that stuff. And uh, and the reason why I don't is because there, it's it's not even it's 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 it, the the content the. The context that everything is kept in is is not something that's reflective of reality. Uh, it's just so so uh, nonsensical. It's like uh, you know the debates that, and, and and I'm not just talking about the mainstream. I'm talking about like so-called alternative, or even get these like libertarian folks. And me and John were talking about this earlier private discussion. And I recollected something he brought to mind about, uh, well, you got this idea of, like, you got these libertarians out there, and then it's this uh, concept that, oh, everything needs to be turned over to the markets, and the markets will solve most of our problems, and, you know, that that that's way better than having government, and then, you know, it's, it's like... Uh, and I remembered I called into one of these shows, you know, the libertarians talking this kind of talk. And I was saying, hey, you know, don't you all know that uh, there is this uh, construct with related to stocks and the stock market? When you're talking about big corporations that there's only like a certain percentage of stock that you have to be in possession of in order to have controlling shares. It's called controlling shares where you actually get to have a say in how the co- the company is run. And that's, those are they're called preferred stocks, preferred stock. And uh, that 
is something that not anybody can buy. Only certain select individuals can buy, purchase these preferred stocks. From what I understand it, and I could be wrong. I don't know. Maybe somebody can correct me on this, but uh, the way I understand it, and this is public, a matter of public information, anybody can pull up. It's like if, unless you have preferred stock, you don't get the rule. You don't be on. You're not on the board that gets to steer the company. And only select individuals can purchase these stocks. And then the people that are in possession of these preferred stocks, the 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 roster is private. You can't a pub the public can't doesn't have access to those records, so they they don't know who's on the controlling board of these stocks uh, of these comp- corporations by way of these preferred stocks. So you have a situation, and and this is inside of our our so called democracy, our republic, right? So you have private control boards over these massive corporations that have so much impact over our lives. And we're not allowed to even know who these people are. Now, how insane is that? And yeah, these libertarians, I've tried to argue with them and they're like this total in total absolute denial. Like, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, the market's going to solve all our problems. It's like, no, you, when you're talking about the government, and you're talking about the corporations, you're talking about the same people. They go back and forth in between. Well, I mean, we're seeing now with uh, with uh, Trump selection. I mean, it's the same people that are on the – they're lobbyists for Nabisco. And then they go into – I'm just throwing stuff off the top of my head. But it's the same thing. Same thing that's always been going on. Uh, they went – there was an, they were an attorney for Monsanto, and now they're um, uh, head of some, some department that oversees that. Or stuff just like that, you know. Goldman Sachs is a big name now. Now there's Goldman Sachs guys on the treasury. Of course he is. Of course, his former Goldman Sachs. Just like he said he was against. Of course, he's appointing Goldman Sachs people on his cabinet to run the freaking, uh, or whatever they do. But yeah, the good Goldman Sachs, the the private corporation are now running the public the government and then when they get done with that they'll go back to the private sector and on and on same people and then there's these interlocking board of direct directorates that nobody gets to know who these people are and they run all the big corporations at the top uh man okay looks like i got some people that have been patiently holding and uh I don't want to touch this thing over here because it hums like a song bitch. Uh, play this little number call out, Dealy. You are listening to the Hoax Pastors Call. To join in, call 724 444 7444. ID 90337. Yeah, yeah. Alright. Get pumped up. Get pumped up. Get some more uh, coffee in my coffee container. And uh, let me just unmute. 
the caller guy, Eli. See what's going on. Please don't be a troll. Hey, how you doing? Very good, Chris. How are you? Doing good. Uh, where are you calling from? Puerto Rico, Catalina. Wow, cool, man. Puerto yeah. Rico. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right here in the technocratic paradigm of uh, the Caribbean. We are under the, the control of the Junta Examinadora. So we're going to uh, have that technocratic uh, sort of rule over us soon. The Soviet term, really. When you when you when you when you read it, you know the junta. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, exactly that's interesting. No, no, it's uh, like a control board that they're gonna uh, implement here, so they're gonna have a control of the economy here in Puerto Rico. Oh. So basically, we we here in Puerto Rico we're like a laboratory, like a model for what the rest of the world's gonna be implementing themselves. Oh well, that's good, isn't it? I mean. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, Puerto Rico is interesting. It's some kind of like a territory of the United States, but it's not technically it's not technically a state like Hawaii, but it's still part of the United States. And then they have like uh, some some kind of like the IRS is headquartered there or something like that. It's really all these different uh, contrivances are really interesting when it comes to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure about the IRS being here, but we have a large presence of international corporations like Monsanto, for example. They have a few laboratories here and they're, you know, planning their GMOs here so they can experiment on the populations like they already have done before. Like Agent Orange was sprayed here uh, to test for the Vietnam War, among other things. Yeah, so they tested out in Puerto Rico before they... Uh, go prime time with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. That sucks. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, <laughs> actually, I'm just yeah. And then you got Carnivorous Rose. You know the the cancer experiments. I guess uh, like 33 Puerto Ricans he infected them with cancer. Now that's an interesting thing too. Uh, contraception for women. Uh, they're doing uh, when women were taken to the gynecologist or were pregnant or something that. They started to uh, do some experiments and trying to do some procedures without their consent, so they would be sterilized. You know, won't be able to reproduce. So well, uh, Puerto Rico has a rich history in. Uh, oh, and also uh, our economic model was based on the Operation Bootstrap, which uh, I believe was started by uh, Rockefellers. So Puerto Rico is a, a little nice lab that, that that the elite have here in the Caribbean, and so is Cuba. Because uh, I've been reading a lot about Castro, especially recently, and uh, I, you know, people here, you know, maybe this is because uh, we've been uh, under this like unofficial, uh, how to say this, status of a colony. You know, we are a free associative state, and that's the term that they use, Estado Libre Asociado. But uh, we're really much a colony, really, and. Uh, so basically with that, people are, and with the story I just told you with all the experience, well, people are more inclined to uh, not believe everything that the U.S. government tells us. So that, I, you know, when Castro died, some people are, you know, I started to talk to people more openly about that. And they all say, man, you know, 
if you think about it, that guy, all this time, right next to the uh, to the United States, all those supposed 600 assassination attempts are a bunch of lot of bogus. Uh, you know, all this time they couldn't take him out. Well, in the in the decades that we was alive, they were taking out all the other countries on the other side of the world. You know, it's incredible. Yeah, it's really silly. I think. I mean, that whole idea. But Jay was telling me that uh, they had like officially like six hundred attempts on his life, and they couldn't. Take him out. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's really funny. Uh, but people don't really believe that, you know. People people believe that, you know, maybe there was some kind of a deal done within him, with him in the United States. But, you know, when I was researching Castro a few months ago, you know, coincidentally, you know, when he died recently, I was doing some research and I and I learned that he did two appearances. He attended like two uh, dinners, I think, at the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, one 1959 and the other 1988. So what is that guy doing to that power circle? You know, that's the uh, the front for the secret society that Cecil Rhodes created, you know, and that's the sister organization to the World Institute of International Affairs. So what is that guy doing there two times, you know? And also you got this story that he was trained by Jesuit priests, you know, Spanish Jesuits, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, and and the, the, there's a famous story that everybody knows here that he wanted to try out for the New York Yankees, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah, he did. I think he did try out, and he went to 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 California to um, try out for different roles in movies and stuff. So. Uh, no, I didn't know about that about the the, the movie acting, but. I, I, th- that sort of was uh, like a story that always been propagated here in Puerto Rico. Well, interesting stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Chris, uh, Kendall, uh, the first time I heard your podcast was actually like a few months ago. That's when I started listening to, uh, your podcast, you know, uh, Afternoon Commute. And, uh, man, I, I, a lot of what you guys said, together with Jay Dyer, too, man, there's some interesting, very important stuff that people should, uh, you know, start putting their minds about it because, you know, like what you were talking about with all the fakery all the fakery everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. like the elections, you know, that's basically like a four years. That's like the term Weltanschauung, worldview. And I always see that, that every four years, like the worldview changes, at least in the bubble where the reality bubble where the Americans live under, you know, the Weltanschauung, the worldview changes every four years. And then you, when you have that left, right, uh, dialectic of control, well, you can shift people's perception to either to the left side of the the the, the politic or the right side of the politic, which really is, uh, you know, what's the term? Uh, the t- uh, wings of the same bird. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah we, well, I know, but... I've I've heard it said, and uh, I I think this is true. Anytime you see a swing over to nationalism, and you hear yeah. like this populist talk about nationalism and stuff, that means get ready for war. So, oh uh, yeah, and, and that's a, that is an interesting thing too. I don't know if you uh, noticed, but well, I'm, I'm sure you guys do. Uh, there's this new narrative that I haven't really seen anybody discuss or uh, you know uh, you know talk about it. It's the populist narrative. Have you heard about that? 
the populist narrative? I yeah, don't the, know. the populist, you know, you know, like for example, I got an article here. Let me, uh, over here. It says, it's, this is from Bloomberg, and it says, Black backlash to world economic order clouds outlook at IMF talks. And in the article, it goes, from Britain's vote to leave the European Union to Donald Trump's championing of America first, pressures are mounting to roll back the economic integration. It has been a hallmark of gatherings of the IMF and World Bank for more than 70 years. And they talk about how this new anti-globalization movement, which they labeled the populism, is framing the you know the 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 framing the current economic world order. You know, here's a quote: "The backlash against globalization is manifesting itself in increased nationalistic sentiment against the outside world and in favor of increasing isolation." Uh, that was a quote from Louis Cougis, head of Asia Economics at Oxford English Economics in Hong Kong, a former IMF official. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so that that's that, and you know, there's also the current foreign affairs magazine. You know, that that publication that they are. Uh, you know, I got to click it over here. Yeah, it's it's, called, it's about populism. Also, you know, title and everything is about populism. So right now, it seems that with Donald Trump and Marie Le Pen and all those uh, nationalist movements that are happening all over the, mo- the world, it looks like the elites are like shifting the narrative towards the populism narrative as if they're going to threaten the current economic world order and that they're going to crash the economy. And that's something that I've been looking at for a while. And recently, I found out the articles from Brent Smith from allmarket.com. I know if you uh, read his articles, but he fleshes that out even more. And he has done a pretty good uh, uh, rate of predictions, you know, on, on the basis of economy and politics. And, you know, and he says also that they're going to put Trump there. And since right now, you know, the, the international institutions like the Bank of International Settlements, he got here, the CFR Publishing Foreign Affairs, the, the, the magazine, this current uh, issue is the power of populism. And, and here it is. Marine Le Pen, Michael Kazan, and much more and whatever. You know, it looks like they're going to set everybody up as if they were pro-Trump, like under the banner of Trump, any anti-globalization, anti-New World Order movements. And then while Trump is in power, they're going to crash the global economy and they're going to blame it on us. And then they're going to call, you know, for the narrative that, yeah, we need more international organizations to take power of world economies. You know, we need more global governance and all that. No, that's the current narrative that I'm seeing right now, and a lot of people are starting to see it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something that something afoot here, and it's, uh, yeah, it's part of a going through a, another phase, another phase towards um, – I guess an overtly uh, kind of open world government. I think we're already in world government uh, for all practical purposes. It's just a- well, yeah, we, we've already been globalized. You know, if uh, yeah. I, I think uh, Jay, Jay Dyer, yeah, Jay Dyer talks about uh, the Soviet Union as being a paper tiger. You know, and I got uh, Anthony Sun's books here right in front of me. I got his. Wall Street in the Wall Street Revolution. I got has got a, a whole Wall Street series here, 
And I also got the uh, article here, ah, the best enemy money can buy. You know, very interesting stuff because, for example, here is, let me look for it here. Where is it? Well, basically, while I'm looking for it, I don't find it right here because I got it on a PDF. And the other books I got on a physical. He basically outlines in this book how, for example, Chuck and Grinder, they, they gave like 35 machines where machines are specialized in manufacturing some very small ball bearings that were designed for the ICBMs. And they gave them like half the capacity, which I believe in the time in 1961 was 70, almost 70 machines for the U.S. And later they lobbied and they gave like 35 of those machines to the Soviet Union. So they gave that technology to build up them that uh, a warlike potential, you know, nuclear potential for the Soviet Union. Now, of course, I, I also seen your videos about the nuclear bombs, and so that's quite interesting stuff. You know, I saw I right before uh, I was uh, doing the account here for Tachi to go into your show. I saw that video about nukes, uh, fake nukes, and that sort of a clip that was really interesting you know when it blew up the, the like the, the cloud of the explosion like froze and while you know where you're supposed to see the whole thing like moving you know the cloud moving from the explosion you just stayed still you know it was really interesting to see but uh really uh, uh most of what we determine as the reality of the of our world is really manufactured and one of the things that really woke me up was reading anthony Sutton's books you know, like we we created the supposed enemy, which mm-hmm. is the Soviet Union and China too. We we gave them technology also. So this is like a global, like a global, like uh, what's the term that Shakespeare used? Like the world stage. We're actually living in a world stage. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. They talk about uh, yeah Hitler too was was created by the bankers and then. He was Time Magazine Man of the Year, I think, multiple times, wouldn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about yeah, yeah, you, you always got those death spots, like always in the Time Magazine uh, front uh, front cover, the frontispiece is always like a, one of those people. You gotta you gotta venerate all these people. You know, they're great people. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. pe- uh, the, the 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 masses are are prone to that sort of thing. I mean, we're I mean we're seeing it now with this Trump persona character that's being put out there and he's already being given credit for turning the economy around and he's not even in office yet it's like insane <laughs> you know, it's like they're, they're talking yeah. About, yeah i've heard people say oh he's he's already brought jobs back to america apple says they're going to bring uh factories back to the america it's like so you take you could take two minutes and go on where they're talking about that, like where what the real scoop is on that, and it says well that that was something that was already obviously already been in the works for some time. You know, it had nothing to do yeah. with who was going to be president. Looks like a lot of this stuff has nothing, absolutely anything to do with it. Who's president? It's just it's probably the fact is that you know it's 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 tougher to operate in China than they thought, you know, and so they're having to reevaluate some of this stuff and maybe maybe uh, re. Uh, reshore some of this stuff back over here now because uh, china's too dicked up maybe i don't know uh but it, it doesn't have yeah, anything but, to do with who's uh, president yeah but i believe uh china, what what with the populist narrative that's going on 
with the international institution like the BIS and, and everything. Uh, some people are talking like they're gonna the, the elites, the super class, you know, like quoting David Rothkopf's book, they're gonna let the economies nationalize for a time. You know, they're gonna bring back some jobs, bring back some uh, some nationalism. You know that that and leave it brewing a little while while the global economy starts to crumble under that uh, that nationalistic base, and then they're gonna blame it. They're going to blame those people, the people that want to, the conservative movements that win. Most people that are now, like I said, that have been falsely categorized as pro-Trump. You know, I'm anti-globalization, anti-new world order, but I'm not pro-Trump. You know, and that they're classifying people like me and like everybody else as uh, anti-globalization and anti-new world order as a pro-Trump. So they just set the trap. So when the global economy collapses, they're going to blame us. They're going to say, hey, you know, it's people like you that are always anti-globalization, anti-new world order. You guys are the fault for this problem. You guys are to blame for the collapse of the global economy. Now we got to really uh, push our agenda. You know, we got to really start integrating everybody under, you know, the super regions, and then eventually we're going to have the global governance. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, yeah, it's just a- Whatever the case, it, it's some setup. It's, it's some setup for some future goal. That's what we're always seeing when we see this stuff. That's what, you know, you look at the news. My first question is, you know, if you see some prominent, something that's being played up prominently, it's like, what what is this? I mean, what are they setting this up for? It's like, what are the, the guy going to the pizza place with a gun? What is the setup for? What is uh, the punchline? Yeah. You know, what is the, what what's, what is this going to mean? Is this going to mean, uh, more censorship on the internet or some, I, I, I tend oh, to think so. I, I think they're setting up the narrative for that. I, is it coming tomorrow? Yeah. No, I don't think it's coming tomorrow, but I, I think it, it, they're laying the groundwork, so to speak for no, no, uh, yeah, something that, in the future that, where they're going to implementation. Yeah. It's slow, gradual implementation. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. And then they, they're going to have these staged incidents that they can point to and say, now see how dangerous the unfettered, uh, Wild West of the internet has become like real people are getting hurt. We're just, it's going to destroy our democracy and <laughs> like all this other just total bullshit, man. But see, it, it, yeah. it all, all they need to do is implausible as this narrative is, you know, and you, 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 you can sit here and scream all day about how these people are actors or whatever. It's, it, it you know, um, well, it's, it's something else me and John were talking about. It's like he was saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's you, know, you know, I think we both kind of came to this conclusion independently on our own but it's simultaneously is that is that when you see the news media and all the stuff that's being cranked out and the narratives that are being pushed out there it's like you have to understand too that the average person is not really paying that close of attention to what's going on they're not really no, analyzing no. it they're not thinking critically they're not they're not a, they're not really um taking sure. the information in they're taking it in passively they're taking it in sound bites they're not so, you know, they, so the way it's going to, that, that's why you see, you really saw it really, really pronounced in this last uh, election cycle is that, you know, and, and, and there's been people that did some analysis of like Donald Trump's speech patterns, like he would use very simplistic mm-hmm. sloganeering and, yeah. and sort of a stilted language that was very kind of um, just, just kind of speaking to like, uh, um, very, very base issues and not really 
do, doing any kind of no, no, yeah, um, the, the, yeah. The, the debates were were really really awful. You know, they didn't flesh out any of the issues. You know, uh, although Donald Trump did, did did good on the topic of taxes, he was right about that. You know, you lower taxes, you let people you know create more money, and that flows into the economy. He has a certain good points on that, but the rest of the the base you saw was just slandering each other. You know, like attacking each other with hominems everywhere. No, there was no really fleshing out of the issues. And also about uh, Donald Trump, if you look at YouTube, if you search YouTube, uh, Oprah Winfrey in 1988, I think, basically Donald Trump's talking points that he used in the current campaign for this presidency, you know, his talking points were already prepared like almost 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, he pointed that out, how like a lot of his positions are very similar to Barry Goldwater and some other. And then he's been he's been likened to uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, candidacy. And uh, <laughs> it's like, really, they 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 have kind of like a, a very uh, when it comes to a lot of this stuff, like the playbook is pretty thin. I mean, there's not a lot of different plays that can be run so it's like you're always seeing these repetitive uh sort of programs being re-put into the tape and run and then it's like wow this is sounds very familiar and then yeah you go back in the 90s and then there was uh the the race between uh Bob Dole, the front runner, Bill Clinton, and then uh, they had the, sure. the third party candidate, Ross Perot. He was a billionaire businessman that talked about uh, how bad the free trade deals were, how bad the unchecked immigration was, something needs to be done. And he was a populist. He was, uh, but then in that case, uh, they had him set up as the, the position, the narrative, so that. Um, it, it, it could be pointed out when Clinton won that, you know, that was because Ross Perot split the vote among the conservatives, blah, 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 whatever. It's just yeah. a big sham anyway. It's a big show. Um, <laughs> yeah. When you look into the guy for real, it's like, well, he got rich off government contracts. So it's kind of like it, it kind of nullifies everything the guy said to me. I mean, I don't maybe a lot of people. It's like the idea that Trump is a self-made man and then. The idea that he probably got oh, like no, no, somewhere no. like forty million dollars to to get him going—that's not really. I, I wouldn't call it self-made, man. I mean, I I, I guess that's a a pretty broad a, a broad uh, definition of that. What that means, yeah. Uh, if you look at uh, Trump's background, if people do a simple search, you'll you'll start to find a lot of interesting connections with him. Especially his uncle, uh, his name is John John J. Trump. He was a top-level physicist, and he actually had top clearance into the military apparatus during World War II. And he had access to, you know, what they, in quote-unquote, atom bomb technology. And also, uh, when Nikola Tesla died, he had access to uh, Nikola Tesla's files. He was uh, put in charge by the government to analyze those documents. And classify him. So right off the bat, yeah. you got a, a a pretty establishment, you know, a connection to the establishment establishment by part of his uncle. And also, there's a book by uh, Michael Collins Piper, uh, the New Jerusalem. And uh, people can find the article; it's already available. I think it's the New American. <laughs> And uh, uh, Donald Trump in the 80s, he acquired uh, uh, like a 93% stake on uh, through stock values. I, I forget how it was, 
But basically, he ended up being the owner of Resorts International. Now, people if people look at Resorts, Re, Resorts International, that was actually a front company that was uh, built up by the CIA director, Alan Dulles, together with uh, Thomas E. Dewey, the uh, governor of New York. And from that, it evolved to, I forget the first name, I think it's Mary Carter Paints or something like that. And then it uh, changed to, uh, a, a, like, a, a merged with another company by Mayor Lansky, I believe, which is, uh, you know, the that the that gangster, the mob, the, the mob guy that was uh, under the control of the CIA, who was uh, in charge of the, the, you know, the network of the opium trades and the drug trafficking around the world. And uh, so they merged, and that company actually has, uh, the people have also, uh, Rockefeller, Mellon, and Rothschild, have stakes in that same company which he acquired in the 80s. And also right now, if you look at his, uh, nominee, his uh, appointee to the Secretary of Commerce, I believe it's Wilbur L. Ross Jr., which uh, represented, which worked with the Rothschilds. He's a billionaire. He's an international banker insider. He worked for the Rothschilds in Rothschild Incorporated. And he actually helped Donald Trump when his uh, interest in casinos in the in Atlantic City, Atlantic City, were faltering, so right now, you know that narrative of draining the swamp it's already gone out the window. Because apart from that, you know you got this guy from Goldman Sachs, which I forget his name, and you know his vice president, you know Mike Pence, he was behind the uh, you know pushing that propaganda of the anthrax um, attacks in 2001 in October. You know, so right off the bat, you got Trump with his family has connections to the establishment, his own business interests, you know, his own, uh, you know, business acquisitions has deep connections to uh, the establishment. Uh, also the Mossad, because uh, there was a Mossad agent that was also working in Research International. And, you know, Rockefeller, Mellons, and all those guys are already involved in CIA, and not to mention that the same company was created by the CIA by Alan Dulles. So right off the bat, you know, that guy is as establishment as it gets. You know, I don't, yeah. and I know I, and some people are already talking about, you know, he's going to change everything. He's going to make everything better. And now, you know, you got Alex Jones, that show, you know, I, you know, that, that was something, you know, I'm rambling here, but you know, that's something that really makes me angry because when, you know, when I started to wake up to the world, you know, the first source I got all this info from, you know, started to understand the new world order was through Alex Jones. And then he just made an about face in the recent years, and, you know, before he was coming out, yeah, the left versus right is a control paradigm, you know, it's, 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 it's to keep people under control, it's all fake, and now that, you know, the knowledge shows has turned about face, and now it's, you know, promoting Donald Trump and the right, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, it's amazing, you know. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, he kind of made a shift back in 2010, uh, we were talking about that, how he went to a a meeting of broadcasters. It was sort of a big, uh, big, and as far as the industry of broadcasting, to be a part of this well, thing. Was it and gave, yeah, it was, uh, I forget the name of it, but he was a speaker there. And from that point on, he started going towards more of the uh, left-right paradigm, started incorporating more of that in, <laughs> kind of being more like a, Glenn Beck on on crack or whatever, but then he's <laughs> now he's just full blown 
ridiculous. I mean, just the guy is just so ridiculous with the left-right paradigm thing. It's like it, it's almost like you can look at a lot, a lot of stuff that's coming out of Infowars, and it's like not only have they went over, yeah, all that, and then the they sound like neocons. They're like neocon yeah. talking points. It's like it's 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 absurd. It's just really it's really crazy. I mean, I, I don't know how else to characterize it, but it's just pure insanity. But yeah, a hundred and eighty degree turnaround from what he but yeah, I I just read this paragraph here. I was just looking at this earlier. Um so this is attributed to the Rothschilds where they say, uh, give me control of the credit in the nation and I care not who makes its laws. It was a famous boastful statement of Nathaniel Mayer Rothschild speaking to a group of international bankers in 1912. And it goes on to say, of the few who could understand the system of checks, money, credits, will either be so interested in its profits or so dependent on its favors that will, there will be no opposition from that class. While on the other hand, the great body of people uh, mentally incapable of comprehending the tremendous advantage that capital derives from the system will bear its burdens without complaint and perhaps without even suspecting <laughs> that the system is inimical inimical, inimical to their interests. And that was uh, attributed yeah. to the Rothschilds. Uh, whatever the case, if that's really what's said or not, that's definitely true. I mean, that's so it, but even with that set of circumstances, you can have this, this this Trump persona that represents the elite. Obviously, he's a billionaire, right? Uh, it, it, yeah. But he's you know like I, I think you know people like the Rothschilds are higher up or are are have have uh, control over much more than than just a few billion. But the, I mean, but uh, yeah, he he is like uh, supposedly this champion of the little guy, which is just really just I, I don't know how. How much crazier can get from yeah. yeah, from my understanding, people in New York hate him. <laughs> like oh, New Yorkers yeah. really hate him. They're, they're not pro-Trump, actually. There are a lot of people in New York that hate him. Yeah, and there's a so lot of uh, people from Puerto that's Rico that live in New York, you know? too, right? Yeah, New Yorkers are whores anyway. Hey, what's mm-hmm. going on there, uh, Lynn? How you doing? Hey, New Yorkers are whores. They're all a bunch of unemployed actors. Look how many New Yorkers rolled over for 9-11. So I don't put much stock in... Uh, yeah. We could go... On. I lived in New York for a while. I went to school there. I got arrested up there. I, I don't even actually want to go down that path. But uh, you, I wanted to mention something about your your guest there. He's calling from Boricua. Is that right? Are you really down there on the beach? Yeah, no, no, not on the beach right now. I'm in my house in uh, a municipality called Carolina. I'm like 25 minutes uh, close to the beach. You know, I got to travel 25 minutes to get there. But right now it's raining. It's dark. You know, it's not fun, fun beach time. Right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he he had earlier in discussing the uh, the Castro narrative. Yeah. I, it yeah. it it got me flashing back on. Um, a time in the 70s when I was very much hanging out with people who were active in this anti-apartheid movement around South Africa. And, uh, you know, leftist-type politics. Much of this was up in Philadelphia, but also in uh, Baltimore, New York, places like that. And 
every day we followed this narrative in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, all the mainstream of the uh, the battle going on between South African troops and uh, Cuban, oh, Cuban yeah, troops sent right. by him. And in particular, what I took note of at the time, since this would be the New York, the, the Gray Lady covering this, was that, well, here was a situation. Now, it, it, no one cares to remember any of this, but it's engraved in my memory because I remember how, how it played out. Um, as you know, there was a, a worldwide sanction against uh, South Africa, and first against Rhodesia, I guess, and then against South Africa. And in any case, uh, there there was uh, this war going on because other governments, in particular the government of Angola and other, uh, shall we say, black African governments, were supporting liberation movements, so-called liberation movements, mm-hmm. and guerrilla armies that were operating uh, – uh, well, um, you know, against the uh, South African, the Boer regime in South Africa. So, one of such organizations was something called SWAPO, the Southwest African People's Organization. I remember funds being raised for this group. There were various factions involved as, uh, in, as well. I can get into the factions that were involved in Rhodesia, the pro-Soviet faction, the pro-Chinese faction. And yeah. uh, and the Western faction, more often than not, the Chinese found themselves in alliance with NATO and the U.S. as against the, the Soviets, the Soviet Union at that time. But but the, the we fought, we followed on a daily basis coverage from the New York Times and other sources of the battles between Cuban troops, volunteers. We were told, and these are these were these were Cubans who volunteered to do this for ideological reasons or to win glory. You know, if you won medals, this in particular one who was quite a hero was uh, uh, Antonio Ochoa. I guess he was a general, young general who was leading this and who defeated the South Africa. And the South Africans, I have to say, had a fairly sophisticated military force coming into this, highly mechanized. They were getting full support from the Israelis. And... um, we we were like wow we were every at night in the bars we would sit around reading and stuff in the New York Times the accounts of Cuban victories against uh, South African uh, armies in Angola and in, in particular the efforts of the South Africans to torch the oil refineries of Angola now yeah. there was a, a new a new uh, independent uh, African regime in power in Angola. Uh, you know, I can't now the names begin to escape me about which, which, you know, who, what was going on there. But re, re, oil is their thing. That's their resource. And copper. And copper. And I imagine they have gold and diamonds as well. But uh, oil is their thing. And mm-hmm. the Seven Sisters were there, right? Shell, Gulf, all the big names were yeah. there. And they were paying. I have to, I, I, they were actually helping to uh, defray some of the cost. Of uh, you know, in in wound, treating wounded and in supplies and so forth of Cuban of the Cuban expeditionary force against South Africa. So this was a weird kind of configuration, and and uh, it struck us all as you know who pays the piper calls. That I, I could I we speculated at the time because many people still felt great great sympathy for the Cuban Revolution, had a lot of illusions about it. And uh, although, although I have to say, some of us after the death of Che, we 
after the death of Che Guevara, for example, we knew, it was common knowledge that it was the Russians and the establishment Communist Party there in Bolivia that sold out, that betrayed Che Guevara and turned him over to the CIA to be executed. And that meant that yeah. the, Soviets, the Soviets were behind that, and that meant that Castro had to go along with that. So, you know, we knew that. We knew that much about the Castro regime that it had pretty much it started to cannibalize some of its own heroes, and it did that in the case of this General Ochoa, who was highly decorated for victories in the field against the South African Army. Uh, he came back to a hero's welcome in Cuba, but then subsequently got into trouble and was executed for having. Uh, set up a drug used used the war as a front to smuggle uh drugs narcotics narcotics i guess narcotics from back and forth between africa and, and somehow or other they got him the, the cuban government got him involved in a and this was a great hero this guy Ochoa. i mean he was he was the he was a, he was he was a hero he was the guy who was credited with defeating south africa and so we watched all this go on and so I guess he was offered it. Well, that proves your guess' earlier point that someone's always offered up as a sacrifice. Maybe that's what we should seg into because that's what's going to come next is who gets offered up as a sacrifice. I mean, gentlemen, that is my – that's where I'm coming from on this. Someone at some point when the shit hits a fan is going to have to be offered up as a sacrifice. There's always a blame game going on among these gangsters, yeah. and they will betray each other. And I don't forget – I don't forget that phrase, basket of deplorables, that obviously some committee of speechwriters came up with and stuck in the over-medicated mouth of Hillary Clinton. Basket of deplorables. That includes a lot of people that we all know, right? It goes well beyond the Trumpsters. Yeah. Well, interesting thing, too, about uh, the Angola situation uh, Anthony Sun does speak about it, and he he mentions that the Cuban soldiers were there to protect. Uh, I believe it's Sharon Shell. The soldiers were there protecting the refinery. Oh yeah, right, uh, absolutely. Oh yeah, the the Cubans were pay, essentially being paid. This is beautiful. It's like it reminds me of how the IRA essentially became gangsterized over time. You know how Sinn Fein and the IRA, the money that could. You know, you understand, yeah, yeah. you know, revolution, revolutionary stuff, inter, it intersects with gangsterism, it intersects with warfare. Um, but when you see the money, the temptation to get involved, and so I don't know, here's what I think was going on. I think this General Ochoa was doing whatever he was ordered to do, and the Cuban government, among other things, was probably using the African war, their African adventure as an opportunity to transship whatever, diamonds, uh, drugs, whatever, you know, to help, uh, because they had, they definitely had a problem with cash flow, dollars, principally, the Q, Q, supposedly. See, that's another thing we'll never know now. All these supposed economic sanctions against Cuba that were making life miserable in Cuba, and that Castro was ostensibly blaming on the Yankee imperialists, I mean, were, how real were they? And if they were real, who was, are, are we being told now that they were deliberately punishing the population of Cuba, but uh, by start by the embargo, but allowing Castro to blame it on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't and, get the and, psychology of it. I don't get it. Yeah, and from my, from my understanding, uh, Castro, Castrito, 
he did maintain ties with uh, nar- uh, narcos, you know, from the mafia area. I, I forget who it is, but he did stay stay uh, connected to some of those drug uh, traffickers from the from the mob. So he really didn't, uh, you know, went against the narco traffickers from Bat- the Batista era. But he kept on going with that, and he, he helped, you know, keep going with the operation. Who knows? Because you know, Florida. You know, from the 80s onward, 70s, 80s onward, you know, was flooded with drugs, you know, from there to Miami, and, and then it reached, uh, you know, uh, uh, what was it called? I forget his name. Uh, Gary Webb. He exposed all this, all this uh, networking of uh, CIA uh, planes, you know, flying coke and drugs to the U- United States and arms too, and they were giving arms back to the Contras. Well, who knows? Maybe Cuba was also a platform to... Uh, you know, bringing drugs to the United States via Florida. Everybody needs cash. Everybody needs dot in an economy where the dollar is the reserve currency of preference for for oil, for natural gas, maybe for pharmaceuticals. You know, yeah. uh, all these things. What what an incentive! I mean, and and, and the incentive for corruption at all levels. When you think about it, there also it's kind of you know how could anybody remain ideologically committed or ideologically pure under those circumstances? I don't see it happening. And Castro, when oh. you look at when you look at Castro's so-called revolution, who's there right in the middle of it? But uh, Frank Sturgis, aka Frank Fiorini, he's just a mob enforcer working for Milo yeah. Lansky. So no one's going to tell me that. Castro hadn't, didn't, he could never have taken power without tacit support, passive, passive support from some. No, 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 it's, it's impossible, you know, that, that the contingent he had, I, I, I believe he actually bought off the, the way he, uh, he acquired victory was that he had a fund and he bought off all those uh, enemy military companies from the Batista regime. He didn't fight them and defeat them in battle, he just bought them off. So that's the way he won, you know. And what, what I—that's the true irony, right? <laughs> Using the capitalist model to win. Yeah, and this is how. If you look at, uh, if you look at the at the financing of the train that took Lenin from uh, oh yeah from exile <laughs> back, you know, to the Finland station, the MN. Yeah, from right Germany to uh, there into Petrograd. Yeah. Well, essentially, with the the German general staff had <laughs> set up the, I mean, the German Lenin was denounced was already being denounced as a German agent. You know, before he even crossed the border into Russia, he was he was being denounced as a, as a German agent. So there was never any ambiguity about that at the time. But the architect of this, Alexander Helfond, aka Parvis. Oh, yeah. uh, the Merchant of Revolution, a guy who fabulously well, uh, fabulously wealthy, but had sort of traveled in uh, revolutionary and exile circles around Europe, and and knew how to and knew he was a wheeler dealer. He knew people in the German with the Kaiser's general staff, Jewish, of course, he was naturally. Um, but they, these are the people that arranged for Lenin to get back in there. They wanted Russia out, out of the war. But who could be who could be opposed to that? 
this awful war. The Russians didn't belong in that war. I say that the Bolsheviks were morally righteous in that, and and, and saying and saying peace. We want out of this war. Essentially, they were good. The, they were expected to uh, continue to to keep German divisions busy on the Eastern Front on behalf of these uh, British. Uh, pull the chestnuts out of the fire for the British and the French. While the Americans managed to get in, as the Americans, you know, had to, had to get troops over there. They were there. The rush was the, the whole idea was to get the Russians to hang in there until the Americans arrived. And the, and the Bolsheviks said, "We're out." They promised to get out of the war, and they did. They had to give up, of course, half of Western Russia to in a humiliating treaty. But yeah, what, what, wasn't uh, wasn't the American troop presence there to guard the the railroads over at Russia, the Russian railroads? And I think there was an article in 1933 where one of those Soviet commanders gave a speech venerating the and thanking the American troops for helping the revolution. I don't I don't know what the narrative is on that. The the more the let me put it this way: the conventional narrative that I had grown up with was that. Poor little struggling Soviet People's Republic was invaded on all sides by expeditionary forces from Britain, France, the United States, Japan, um, Czechoslovakia. You know, all these all these foreign troops in, invaded to strangle the revolution. That's their narrative, you know. That is yeah, their narrative. Now, You're talking about the November Revolution, right? The, the, yeah, the, one the Bolshevik, where, right, the Bolshevik Revolution. Their claim is... Yeah, but there was like a previous, like there was a first, first of, like, a, like what yeah, you could say, a, a legitimate a, revolution, and well, then the Bolsheviks came over and took yeah. over that revolution and steered it in their direction. Well, the problem, with the, money from, the, the problem with the so-called legitimate revolution... Was it? It soon became clear that there were slaves of the British and the French because they weren't going to get out of the damn war. They weren't going to negotiate an armistice with the Germans and stop the fighting. See, and, and that's what it came down to. So it's easy for people in the abstract, or even in hindsight, to say, "Well, you know." Look what a scam this was, or look who was being manipulated here. But under certain circumstances, when you've got people, and and the other thing about the Bolsheviks, I have to say this is they were always opposed to that war. They were the people who said no, no, don't march off to war. They opposed the war from the beginning. They were uncompromising about it. Well, yeah, uh, because they were going to set up that new, uh, you know, that Soviet Union. And I'll tell you something else. I'll tell you something. What do you have any idea what the casualties were? For Russia, for the Russian Empire, in World War One, the war to end all wars, this great war that uh, Lenin and Trotsky and the rest of them managed to get get Russia out of. What the total number of death, Russian deaths, would have been for? I mean, what's the official number? Or I don't know. Maybe Chris is going to say these numbers are bullshit, but it sounds like a lot of people that more Russians died than just of any other nationality, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so I mean, like I've heard, like I've heard anything from 11 million to tw- well, yeah, I think 11 million, and then you have 22 million in World War, II, like almost twice that. 
but those are magical. You know, it's like Stalin said, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. <laughs> so coming out of that, when you see a country that's been devastated, because they lost that war miserably to the Germans and to the Austrians. They just lost it miserably. They didn't win anywhere, the Russians. They never should have gotten involved in the war. And uh, you're the now the, and and now the guys who the so-called moderates who led the first revolution in March that you're talking about the, the March revolution that you referred to earlier that you referred to as a legitimate revolution <laughs> legitimate because it was favored by the British the French and the Americans it was favored by all the establishment the pro-war powers say because it was going to keep Russia in the war that was a deal. And that was under this guy Alexander Kerensky, sort of a sort of a socialist, I guess. I don't know. I don't know a liberal. We would have said a bourgeois liberal. No, they kept Russia in the war. And so, can you blame people for saying, "Well, we're going to throw in our lot with the Bolsheviks"? If the Bolsheviks said, "No, we're getting the fuck out of this damn war," and not only that, we're going to read, we're going to bust up the land and redistribute the land, and we're going to feed all the work bread. We're going to feed everybody. Everybody's going to get fed instead of dying of starvation. Yeah. So who wouldn't go for that? Who wouldn't go for that? Yeah, but they turned that around and started killing people. <laughs> Well, what do you think of what do you think of all the farmers that uh, were that uh, are being independent, and they started uh, rounding them up and shooting and shooting them. You know, yeah, they, 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 they didn't believe in the middle class. You know, but because, what I'm you know, suggesting, what I'm suggesting here is that the brutality of having lived through this miserable World War One, this terrible war, had so uh, hardened people and made them so cynical and so jaded. That can we be surprised that they would be willing to shed more blood to say, look, you know, can anything be worse than what? I mean, remember, World War One is the first time you saw poison gas introduced mm-hmm. in the trenches. So uh, everyone talks about these revolutions as though they were political abstractions. They were not. They were visceral, gut-level reactions to horror and suffering. And no, yeah, but, but, but the problem is that you got people like, for example, William, uh, William H. Thompson from the New York Federal Reserve. He did a, a mission through the Red Cross, and uh, and that mission it was all basically lawyers and people from Wall Street. And there was only like uh, maybe like nine medical people, like a few nurses, a few doctors. And then went over there while the Re- the Bolshevik Revolution was going on, and they were uh, giving assistance, monetary assistance, to the Bolsheviks, the guy from the Federal Reserve in New York. And I believe it was uh, the, the the administration, the Woodrow administration, as somebody said, that they didn't need, I think Russia and the people over there, they said that they didn't need any Red Cross assistance. So that was very suspicious part of the whole narrative that was uh, part of the Bolshevik Revolution. You know, you got a guy from the Federal Reserve in New York going over there, and giving, I think, a, a, I think, a more than a million dollars, which from these, uh, which today it's valued more, you know, because about inflation, if you adjust it to inflation, it was a, it was a lot more money. I think like maybe thirty million dollars or more. You know, you got people from Wall Street going over there, so you gotta really give up, take anything that's about the Soviet uh, revolution, all that narrative with a grain of salt. And uh, Anthony Sun documents in, in the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, like Trotsky was in New York. 
Uh, he had like $10,000. He had a refrigerator, which is very rare in those days to have. The Jacob Schiff, got- J- J- Jacob Schiff was financing uh, Trotsky, and I think the hope was among Wall Street, uh, among the bankers, the hope was that in Trotsky and others – whom were being subsidized by people like Schiff and Warburg and others, that uh, they would be able to co-opt the Bolshevik regime. Why not? I think that was yeah, their gamble. That was their gamble, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but if you go back also to Carl, you know, from the ideology and everything, you know. I mean, you got Henry Ford. You got Henry Ford helping in in the twenties, helping to industrialize yeah. the new Soviet Republic. This yeah, new yeah, experiment. That's, that's, that's all documented here in, in the Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution and uh, the Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development, three volumes. Those books I highly recommend anybody read. They're very good books. But then, you know what's interesting? About it. We don't have formal diplomatic recognition or formal diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union until Roosevelt, FDR, comes in in 1932. Is that correct? So that's almost that's yeah. like 20, that's like a long time. Um... Well, 10, 15 years, maybe. But, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's not clear to me. See, I don't see, I don't see gangsters as monolithic. You know, I, I see them as polycentric and competing and sometimes ruthlessly um, killing each other, sacrificing each other. This goes back as far to medieval and ancient times, I mean, if you look at Rome, the Roman members of the Roman imperial family would routinely poison each other or had each other murdered. Rivals, uh, you know, in uh, among the royal houses of Europe, you know, there's nothing that's more dangerous than extra princes. Once one of them has been delegated to be the heir, there's nothing that's more dangerous than others that might be eligible. So they have to be eliminated or neutralized one way or another. So I don't know that there's anything new in this. I just think we have to be we have to understand the gangster character of it. And I don't I hate to see it mystified with all this I don't know, you know, Masonic or Illuminati. I understand uh, Illuminatus mumbo jumbo. I, I understand there are secret societies involved. Well, you know, that's the nature of criminal conspiracy, criminal enterprise. Yeah. It's conducted in secret. It's encrypted, whatever. Well, aren't these wars? I mean, you look at it, and okay, they're banker finance wars, or you you say, well, how do they get the Bolshevik revolution going? Well, the people had to undergo some process of uh, being taken through a a conditioning process to get them to where they or they want to engage in this war. You know, so that that they were propagandized to you know be just just. I mean, if you look at how we're propagandized in the modern day to get behind the idea of war. It's it's it should it shouldn't have been no different back then. There wasn't even any, any real uprisings or revolutions that were um, it, it, where the where the masses kind of just take a notion to to gather up or take up arms and overthrow the monarch or whatever supposedly happened. It it happened the same way then as it hap- it, it, it as it happens today. It's through, through manipulation and through. Uh, the slogan airing and all this stuff and they get, you know, they get, and it's a lot of uh, effort and organization that takes place from the upper levels. And then of course the financing comes in because without the financing, you can't have the war. 
And so that's why you always yeah. see the bankers involved in doing this. And it's just like what I got through reading. It's like where, you know, you have the system set up where you have the people at a certain level. They're, they're, they're too concerned with how they're going to profit from the system to expose the whole sham of it. The people at the bottom are propping it all up without having any knowledge of how everything, anything actually works at the top. And they're the ones that are going to be the cannon fodder for the wars and the way that they get in, engaged in the wars through the, through the, the bombardment of the propaganda, the propaganda, you know, it, it had, it took not, on a different, Chris, took on Chris, a different that's not form. Necessary anymore. No, that's not necessary anymore, Chris. Think about this. See this. Now I'm going to throw back at you what you have taught me. What, what I guess about a year of listening to you has taught me, I'm going to throw back in your face <laughs> what you've taught me. Yes, absolutely. Routinely, they would sacrifice you know, the commons in these gang wars and, and, and to bloody – and they would devastate vast stretches of land. And if you look at the Thirty Years' War, for example, which just vast stretches of Central and Eastern Europe just utterly destroyed, Germany gone. That, that never recovered. Yes, that's true. But we live in a different time, see? This is all going to be automated now. I was thinking about this. Why would you need an Air Force when you've got drones? Why would you need human soldiers when you've got robot armies? The only purpose that human soldiers would serve would be purely symbolic. See? And in mm. such a case, you can simulate it. I mean, half the battles we hear about going on right now between, I don't know, ISIS and the Syrian army or whoever, whoever, whatever source you're getting it from, we'll never know how much of that is just pure fabricated narrative or, you know, or maybe distorted narrative from one, some location or another. We, we, we don't know without having our own sources on the scene, do we? So you have to, what, what we do is, I know what we do, we got a sparse matrix. We scan all the available sources. We look at the SANA, the Syrian news service. We look at Press TV, we, you know, RT. We go through all of them and try to piece together. We try to reverse engineer some coherent narrative from all this. But to, to, to suppose that they now have to recruit vast armies of real flesh and blood humans, I'll tell you right now, if they even – you know, you're talking about, for example, reinstituting the draft in America, which, by the way, my generation is supposed to have – abolished, you know, the, yeah. protesting the Vietnam War. We didn't really end the war, but we ended the draft. We probably prolonged the war, but we ended the draft. Um, it, it, the notion that this would even be necessary in this sort of postmodern world where warfare, it's, it's psychological operations, it's simulation, it's, it's creating chaos and confusion among the enemy, it's, it's, it's gaming the enemy. And it's not as kinetic in the sense of it doesn't require the bodies unless, and here's what I say, if you see someone pushing for bodies, well, you know they're setting up a ritual sacrifice, see? That is purely for ritual effect. It, has, it, it increasingly is irrelevant from a strategic point of view. When, when real kinetic wars are fought with these robots and drones, they're fought remotely and all this other crap. And they don't need humans to actually do They don't need humans for half this shit. It'll be like Wag the Dog, like that movie. Well, it, what, the, the, what, well okay, it, so it begs the question, what is the, what is the, and what is the purpose of war? I don't, I don't think that there has been... Reward from a, Iron Mountain. 
Report from Iron Mountain. There yeah, it is it's, right there. I think you same reason. The same. Uh, the same reason. It, there's very uh, well. I don't think it's the same. I think it's a very similar reason behind war. Is the same. Is the same reason why we're subjected to this ISIS propaganda and the terrorist propaganda. Um, now, does it require like somebody close to you or even yourself to take shrapnel? from an al-Qaeda in order to, in order for it to have its effect. No, it's a psychological effect. The same with war. I tend to doubt the casualty numbers and stuff like that because I can see the incentive to, uh, you know, uh, exaggerate those numbers for propaganda purposes. I think it's always been the case. And I think that um, it, it, is, it is primarily for uh, psychological effect. You know, there's no reason for us to go in and and bomb uh, Iraq other than like uh, was pointed out in some documentaries is that it, it the, the main purpose that it served was to um, demolish their their standing culture that they had going there and re and supplant it with something else. And uh, that and, and I think, well, I mean, that's de dealing mainly with the, the, the psychological effect of it. And then, you know, that that oftentimes includes uh, wiping out landmarks and and things that give people a sense of uh, social cohesion and stuff, through the, you know, through their uh, cultural centers and everything. You, you, you destroy those things, you wipe them out and you start with a clean slate and you implement something else. And I think that's a primary objective in, in the, the the physical destruction of these objects. It's not because that the they have further utilitarian uses for their what they mean culturally and psychologically and as as, uh, as, as social cohesion and bonding. Those things are being dismantled. Yeah, it doesn't have that much to do with infrastructure and, and disabling their economy or anything. That's a, that's a side effect. And that's also... Uh, that's also instrumental in changing and shaping their culture, certainly. But it's not that I don't think that's the main primary objective. Like they'll tell you that these are strategic sites, you know. But then you go and you look. Oh, what is that? What's the actual damage on the ground? It's like, well, they drop freaking bombs on schools. Like, why the hell do you need to wipe out schools? Well, it's like, yeah, it's because, um, like they were saying in that documentary, which I, I tend to believe a lot of it's true. I mean, they, they, they're pointing out different things where they're just wiping out culture. It was a cultural landmark. It was a center of learning and culture and cohesion for that for that area. And then that's that's why it had to be a target. Same same thing with their statues of uh, why why did they destroy statues? Why go through that trouble? Well, because it's it's a it's a, a psychological effect. You know, it's a and. Um, and I think that's what war has primarily been about. And then in the aggregate, when you take up, you, you know, you're talking about all the re Russian revolutions and then, you know, the stuff that went on in uh, East Asia, all that stuff with the Vietnam and all that stuff. Like, they, there's writings, of the, 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 um, the ultimate goal is to um, illustrate the horrors of war sort of setting up the dialectic where you can say, um, well, here is what happens when without a, um, by inferences, this, this, what, you know, cause what came out of what world war one was the league of nations. And then out of world war two was the United nations, you know, it's like, it's problem reaction solution. So they create the wars that the, 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 the people 
in, in control of finance and everything. What it's got to reading that Rothschild quote is like the people down the bottom, they don't understand. They just take part in these things and that, and, and the people at the top are benefiting and then you see war profiteers and all that. Well, that's, that's what, that's the driver of it. And that's the interest in it for them. But then the overall inconsequences of reorganization of, of culture with the back narrative of, oh, the, the horrors of war. And then just like it is on, on one level with Al Qaeda and how, uh, you know, they're infiltrating, they're coming across our borders. We don't see them. We don't really experience it. But then the narrative is in place that, oh, they're out there. And that's why we need X, Y, Z, which is in the form of FBI, CIA, and then, the, and then more and more of that presence and more and more funding for that sort of thing, which is, which basically amounts to, you know, more, more and more control. But see, that's always, that's always been the goal. And ultimately the goal of like uh, conducting these wars, well, have, they have multiple purposes, but I, I think with the, with the ultimate goal is establishing this, this narrative in people's minds of, oh, well, we need like a central governing authority, not only a strong centrally governing authority over our independent nations, but then, you know, we also need this on a global scale now. And that's what the, that's what we've been, uh, that's what all of this has been about, this training process to, to we go through this and we go through this again and again and again. And now we're in this phase of it where the United States is this arch villain in many parts of the world. That's what we're regarded as like we're the, you know, this imperialist power that's engaging all this, instigating all this for some purpose of, you know, you, you know Western hegemony, they call it, where they want to make make the globe into uh, you know, uh, something, something would be, uh, an extension of the United States imperial power, but no, the, 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 that, that's true on one level in one respect, but, it's, but that's not the ultimate goal. It's, it's, to, it's just, these are all stage props on the global stage to create this, uh, the, this, um, whole storyline or narrative about, you know, how and, and it's always the, the punchline is always more centralized power, more centralized control, more power in fewer hands, and everybody just sort of accepting and acquiescing to all that. And then now the the, the next phase is to have the open centralized authority of of, of the uh, world government, and then have that be a, a commonplace thing. I mean, they've already had that. When did they announce the European Union? They they announced it. Uh, early 2000s uh then it was three years later they had the 50th year anniversary celebration i mean so so the, well the, even yeah even european before union existed before they even announced right it. so i mean that's that's how this stuff works so i mean we are already in world government right now but see the the reason why we're going through this we still got to go through this training process is to get everybody into because I, because I go back again to the foundational premises, like what's the foundational premises of government, the legitimacy of the law. I've read that stuff and went over it. It's like what it, what it really amounts to, what, from what I can gather, is that what, what the average person will accept as normal, as justified, as right, as right. That is what the law, the legitimacy of the law is based on, and that's based on people's perceptions, and then in order to get that in line with what the people at the top of the uh, pyramid want, 
is to take us through these processes, these psychological operations, and, and war is a big part of it. But I think, like, um, with that, with those stated goals in mind, like all the high death tolls and stuff like that, where you oh, you know, talking about in Russia, well, 11 million people died, or like in, under communism, hundreds of million died and stuff like that. I, I think that is to, is, is, is when you, when you hear those, um, huge numbers like that, it's like, I mean, I automatically have to doubt them. I don't, I, 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 anything involving war or the outcome of war or something like that is, is highly doubtful. Uh, but, but then again, too, you got to think of what, well, how does this serve the agenda? Well, it's the, 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 the theme is, oh, the horrors of war or the horrors of, uh, communism and those things being put out and then like, oh, so you have hundreds of millions of people died. What an awful, horrible thing. We got to fight this scourge. And then so we had Vietnam. So we had the uh, shit in South America and all that stuff. The fighting the commies. We're always, we're, we're, we did that for 50 years. Fighting the commies, fighting the commies. But it's all hinged on this, this these narratives that have been created. And it's like, man, you have to doubt those. It's like, oh, really? hundred million? You know, it's like, it's, just, it's like, no, it serves a purpose. It serves a part of the, it gives, it gives, um, yeah, the sense of urgency is like, oh, they're going to kill us all if we let them take over. And they're trying to take over and they already killed 100 million of their own or 200 million or 500 million of their own people or whatever the ridiculous, exaggerated numbers are. Because the reason why they have the exaggerated numbers is because it serves that purpose, like this this evil, awful threat, this evil empire that we have to fight or they're going to kill us all. You know, so they're going to take over. And it's like, uh, well, they, they did it with the American Indians, too. I mean, they the the jesuits from what i understand i don't know i wasn't there but they radicalized the uh the, the indians you know they taught them how to take scalps and all that stuff and then so they the then the then the picture was painted of the the natives as being barbaric savages that are you know the the only thing on their mind is bloodlust and killing and then that's how they that's how the picture was painted of them. and then then you have the justification for uh, wiping them out, you know, the, the, through manifest destiny. And that's like this. Oh, so that's what we ended up doing. We were really successful about it, but we had to be propagandized first, you know, in order for everybody to be on board with it. And that's, and we're seeing this over and over and over again. It's like, and then, um, like in this recent case, the guy shows up at the pizza, pizza place with a gun. It's like, it doesn't even have to be real. It's just an actor. It's an acted thing out. Do, do we have to have real casualties? Do we have to have real, uh, angu- gut-wrenching anguish and stuff that's happening for real that these people are experiencing. No, we just have to have the perception of it. And then the same thing with war. Do we need Do we need uh, mountains of dead bodies for real? It's like, no, we just need the perception that this evil empire over here is engaged with that. And then that way they can propagandize it and get our fighting men ready to go fight this evil scourge. I mean, it's so you could you can swap heads with uh, the Japanese were the evil guys at one point in time, and then it was, of course, the Russians that were at one point in time. But it's all it's all propaganda. It's all it's all propaganda, and it's like any anything that comes out about that is just highly highly questionable. It's just there's there's no reason to really believe it. You know, maybe maybe some half truths in there, but it's it's not. It, yeah, it's not something that I accept. You know. So especially war history and all that stuff, it's like I, whatever the motives, whatever the intentions or everything. But I, I think, yeah, there, these these events, these revolutions and stuff are always orchestrated. They're always there's always the money interest behind them. 
and there's always the the preceding propaganda agenda that the population undergoes and then it's like oh look they're all ready for war what do you know and then like the economy they take the economy down and it's like yeah you know what uh i can't find a job but you know i heard the army pays good and that's what it always comes down to is the it's the bottom line the bottom line is the bottom line in a lot of respects i hasten to point out earlier that the Bolsheviks were able to seize power because they promised people they were going to take Russia out of the war, which they proceeded to do. I don't so, think they seized power. I think that there was that the that the revolution, so-called, was a uh, a, a, sta- a it was a staged event to create to alter the perceptions of that that particular population in that particular region. Is what it what it was yeah, for. Yeah, but altering but then, like it, also involved also involved freeing up, hundred you know like maybe a million German troops. But in from order, the but see, let me turn let, around. But let me just say this: in order to counter what I just said, you have to get inside yeah. the heads of the Bolsheviks themselves, and like, what are their real motivations? I would guarantee, I would, I'd be willing to bet any amount of money that their motivations was hunger and starvation. We want to fight in this fucking war because I need to get something to eat. That's what happened. They tore the economy down. What are we going to do? Well, we got a job. How do they have money for war? It's like nobody ever asked that question. It's like well, we don't have money for food. We don't have money for regular industry or anything like that. But we got money to go to war. Same thing they did in Germany. Nobody questions it. Same thing they do over here all the time. Oh, our economy's devastated. How the fuck are we over in uh, Iraq then building gigantic military bases and spending um, like a, a million dollars like every 15 minutes over there or something like that? Something totally absurd. And then it's all oh, the economy's bad, though. And it's like, but it's like, well, how the fuck are we engaged in not only one war, but war on multiple fronts with bases all over the fucking world? That doesn't make any goddamn sense. That's that's totally unacceptable from any logical thinking person. But yet we accept it like it's that. Well, that's just, you know, that's that's the way it is. And it, it, it's like. Well, no, the same thing they do, like, what, okay, when it's time to go to war, if we, we'll know we're fixing to get engaged in, in another big war when you see the economy, the bottom falls out of the economy, the only jobs, the, the only money that's available to be had is in war, the war industry. And then it's like, well, shit, I don't know what else to do. I just got out of school. There ain't no jobs. I can't find a freaking job. I got this education. Hey, you know what? You know what, son? You, gotta, you ever think about the military? You ever, you ever think about it? You know, it's like it's it's good paying jobs. It's like, where the fuck is the money coming from to pay me on this when there's no economy? But nobody, it's, it's just, it's just, it just goes on, and and it's like nobody asks that. That that's a huge question, isn't it? It's like, okay, how how the hell are we sustaining this big gigantic military when when people can't even get jobs? Well, no, it's, it's, you're, you're looking at a setup. You're looking at a scam operation is what you're looking at. It's like, that doesn't make any damn sense. It's like, it's like it'd be like, uh, I, 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 well, I was going to try to think of an analogy, but looks like John is on the call maybe. Southern California, is that John? Maybe he's got an analogy. Just come up with something. Just Hello, Chris and Lynn. Hi, how you doing? 
read you something here. This will pertain to the uh, end of yours and uh, Nino's and Richard's discussion um, on punk rock and pertain to what you're just talking about. Karl Marx's ideology was a historical ruse, a stratagem for the ruling elite. Marx was related to the Rothschild family. Nathan Mayer Rothschild married Hannah Barrett Cohen, daughter of Levi Barrett Cohen and wife Lydia Diamont Schiffler, which Diamont Schiffler translates into diamond grinder, and paternal granddaughter of Barrett Cohen and wife, whose other son Solomon David Barrett Cohen married Sarah Brandis, the great grandparents of Karl Marx. Nathan Rothschild had given Marx two checks for several thousand pounds to finance the cause of socialism. The checks were put on display in the British Museum after Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild, a trustee, had willed his museum and library to them, or used David Rivera in Final Warning, A History of the New World Order. Also, as Anthony Anthony Sutton notes in Wall Street, the Bolshevik Revolution, both the extreme right and the extreme left of the conventional political spectrum are absolutely collectivist and both recommend totalitarian politico-economic systems based on naked, unfettered political power and individual coercion, a system well-suited to the banksters who are, after all, monopolists. While monopoly control of industries was once the objective of J.P. Morgan and J.D. Rockefeller by late 19th century, the inner symptoms of Wall Street understood that the most efficient way to gain an unchallenged monopoly was to go political and make society go to work for the monopolists under the name of public good and the public interest. It was, after all, John D. Rockefeller Sr. who declared competition is a sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and wasn't it uh, Marx's wife, uh, Westphalen, uh, his, her brother was uh, in charge of uh, the police, or the uh, special police of, uh, of Prussia, I believe it was at that time. That's and correct, uh, he yeah. was, and he was investigating, you know, he was responsible for investigating subversive organizations. He, he was investigating Marx while he was his brother-in-law. <laughs> he was reporting to the to the Prussian royal, uh, you know, Prussian royals. Yeah, that's true. Well, we we <laughs> talked about this, John. Right? It's like people are, in generally speaking, are not ideologically driven. They're not political. They're they're not not for real. I mean, we're seeing this now with these uh, protests and stuff like that. We're seeing now, ostensibly, they're for oh, because anti-Trump and they were upset about the elections. And then, it, but there's all this all this proof out there that these, these are funded operations. I mean, they got Craigslist yeah. ads all over the damn internet, you know, every, everywhere where these things have shown up, you got Craigslist ads. And now they're not calling for protesters they're calling to get in these, uh, leftist organizations for, uh, ostensibly, but I guarantee you, they say, Oh, while you're down here, Hey, you want, we're going to gather up and go down and march around in circles. You want to go with us? And sure. Do I right. get paid? It's like, yeah, you get paid. Up, it's like, that's how, that's how shit goes down in our system. The Domino's pizza. Yeah, we're going to have pizza, too. 
That's how shit goes down in our system. Do you really think those <laughs> fucking knuckleheads are going around there marching around in circles on their own volition because they're politically, ideologically motivated? For fuck's sake, hell no. God dang, man. I, I, that's not the world that I live in. I, if that's the case, I've I dropped in here from another damn multiverse or something. It's like because I, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 where where are those people at? I've never run into them. They're they're not ideological. They don't even, they're not ideologically driven enough to talk about anything. For fuck's sake! Yeah, that's that's true, Chris. Because you know people, you know what's the what what do people really live for? You know they they just they just want to live a normal life. You know they they just want to have a good what family, whatever, a good home. That's all. That's all they're aiming for. You know, and people, you know, it's like the elections. You know, every four years, in in that space that 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 uh pocket of time every four years between the elections people don't give a damn about what's going on in, in, in with the white house with the government they don't give a damn about it they just want to live their own lives you know and then every four years at the end of every four years that's when the media starts picking up and say you know it starts sending a signal through people's tv and says hey everybody pay attention we're gonna you're gonna participate in this ritual so you still believe in the system yeah, yeah, but they're but see they're chanting in unison down with Trump. It's like, well, fuck, people do that at rock concerts too. Does that mean that they are yeah. all? Yeah. yeah. Does that mean that they're all of one mind ideologically? It's like, hell no. Is there some radicals in the bunch that are true believers? Yeah, absolutely. But that's not the that's not the bulk of the group. The bulk of the group oh, is just like you'll see. Yeah, we talked about this with the like rock concerts. Like, uh, so there's the core hardcore fans, you know, that are will be at these concerts. Like, they may they even have people that follow them around from uh, state to state to go to every one of their concerts. You know, these groupies and stuff. There, there's a there's a central core, but the majority of the people there are just like shit. This may be a good show. Yeah, shoot, I'll go. Or you want to go? Fuck yeah, I'll go. It's like, and then when they're there, it's like, yeah, raise your fist in there. Say say. uh I don't know. Whatever we're gonna chant and we're gonna get into the show. It's like it's a part. Be a part of the show and have fun. It's like that's Trump. what you're seeing with these so-called revolution revolutionary movements. Like we're seeing now. It's like oh, this is we're having this 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 moment, this national moment, where it's like people are so upset about the president and and what he represents as far as social injustice that. Everybody took to the streets. It's like, no, fuck no. That's not that's not what you're looking at. That is absolutely not what you're looking at. Trump himself Trump himself has spoken in vague generalities, uh platitudes, truisms. All politicians do. <laughs> right, right. And some of it's kind of uh encrypted. I felt he was definitely using language that could be interpreted different ways in order to target different demographic sectors. And I don't know who's writing his lines for him or who's scripting it, but so you know, it's a it, people see the shallowness there. I don't think there's all that much illusion about Trump. Um, when he started attacking the media and accusing the media of being liars, that resonated with people. So now, yeah, and, a, and it's called demagoguery. It's like it's the old thing. It's been around since presidents have been around, you know. So, yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. It's, of course, it's going to resonate for people because he's he's a demagogue. He knows, well, it, and that by definition, he knows what to say. 
It's also resonating with people because it happens to be true, right? The media is controlled, and they are liars, right? So, so people are saying, "Wow, you know, we're we're for the person who's saying what we think," <laughs> you know. Like if he's saying that, bullshit out of his ass, like he's saying like Sylvester Sloan is the best actor ever lived. I don't know. Is it is going to resonate with people? No. I just I don't right, know I said that. Right. But like anything, and you just say any. You can't just say anything. It's got to. It's got to. Yeah, it's got to have an air ring of truth to it. Absolutely. But does that mean that that's what he really represents? It's Look like, what they've I don't done, know. though. Prove it. You Look know? what they've done. They overnight they've shifted Alex Jones into the mainstream, and others yeah, as well, man. right? Yeah. <laughs> I want to so, get back to Chris implying that Sylvester Stallone isn't the best actor. I, I know. I was, when it came out of my mouth, I was I knew what I had done. I'd made a mistake. But haven't you ever seen Finger and Cash? Rhinestone, dude. I take it. I take it back. I never thought Arnold. You know, I never thought Arnold Schwarzenegger was so great up on the screen, but he ended up being elected governor of California. So. And that while he was sleeping with the nanny and getting well, her pregnant. <laughs> well, here, here's here's one more thing. Also, um, what you and Nino and, you and Richard were discussing at the end of the punk rock call um, had to do with uh, figuring out that Marxism was an ideology that would never actually play itself out in real life. And you know, you and I have discussed that many times before in the form of. Trotskyite perpetual revolution, mm-hmm. and that it's always a perpetual revolution. There's always a revolution to be had. There's never a stable. You know, Marxists will overthrow each other. Uh, excuse me, but Thomas Jefferson believed in permanent revolution. Oh, I, yeah, I made that point before. <laughs> yes, the uh, tree of liberty from time to time must be watered with the blood of tyrants and patriots alike. He called for a major a major revolution every 20 years, every generation or so, right? And I believe that he was an illuminist, most likely. <laughs> yeah, but see, that doesn't include... Bavarian, Weishoppian, Illuminati. What you notice with the elite, that doesn't include their kids. Do they suit up and go? It's like, if this is no. all... If anybody wants to hold them to their ideology, which nobody ever does, or it seems like that's a thing we should even do. But that, if ideology is so friggin' important, that would be the first thing. We would demand it. Like, we'd say, yeah, John McCain, your kids, absolutely, you need to suit up, and your, and your kids and, and grandkids that are a fighting age damn sure better suit up. And they better be on the – they need to be in the heat of the battle, dude. But well, see, George that's not w. that's Bush not important to the mass mind. That's not even George, suggested George, that they should be done. George W. Bush suited up, don't you remember? He suited up in one of those jet jockey uh, outfits and flew onto the aircraft. Was it a carrier? Yeah, I guess it was a carrier. Mission accomplished. And they should have took that? his ass and put him right in the <laughs> hottest battle over there. That's what the, which would have been proper thing to do. But no, it's like no, they're yeah posers and. McCain, he didn't he didn't do anything. That's some fake stuff. John Kerry, John Kerry didn't do anything. You know, 
but my point is that they get away with it. They get it regularly. You really believe that Prince Harry went out and, you know, saw some battle in Afghanistan? (laughs) Yeah. So obviously ideology is not that important to them, you know. It's 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 a it's all has to do with perception management and and, and manipulative tactics and social engineering and th- that they're that's what they're employed at. They're not they're not primarily concerned with uh, their their yeah, ideals that's, that's about true, uh, you know sub, you know uh, democratic democratic supremacy or whatever whatever the fuck they're supposed to be standing it's, for. It's like yeah, they don't the stand for theory. anything. But they're the paradigm here. No, no, yeah, that's true. That, that those those ideologies, those are for the people, for the masses. Yeah, they're not that's for, for the elite. Yeah. They don't believe in that at all. They those don't. Yeah, they the don't. People. They don't believe in any of that <laughs> shit. It's all bullshit to them. They know it's bullshit. It's like it's all of it's bullshit. <laughs> they know. They know. They I don't understand. Believe, I don't believe. Get your Get your board society to true to um, you know, racial or bloodlines or anything like that and believe that there are bloodlines and that they do have children within those bloodlines. But do you really think someone with that much power, if they felt like, you know, having sex with someone of a different race or someone of a lower class, that they're not going to do it? They'll do it. Yeah, and, and like... um I'll refer again to that movie Network. You know, they come out. Look okay, at that famous scene where he's in the boardroom and he's giving him he's giving Mister Beale the rundown. Of, oh, here, here's here's how the world that really operates is that there is no countries, there's no nations, there's one big dominion of dollars. Well, that's that's yeah, right, that's, dead in line with what I read about what the Rothschilds said. You know, it's like they, they it's like it's like people don't understand how this works. They don't understand like. Like Putin and um, you know Assad and all those people, it's like they're they're shell they they have uh, shares of stocks in Western corporations and stuff. They damn sure do, and that's that's their primary concern. And 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 on one level, they're just actors playing out a role in this whole theater, yeah, global true. theater. I think it was uh, the Russian finance minister. Uh, during the Ukraine crisis in 2014, there was an article by the Associated Press when that mentioned that he said that yes, that Ukraine should pursue taking one of those loans from the IMF, and who's the IMF? International Monetary Fund is based in Washington. So what's that guy? You know, supposedly the enemy of the IMF or, or Washington, you know, the United States, advocating for Ukraine to take a loan from them. You know, it's, it's totally ridiculous, you know, and so is the the BRICS group, you know, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The people around the boards, you know, there's this Chinese uh, uh, person that works for the People's Bank of China. He, in 2009, he said that, yes, we should all pursue and integrate ourselves into the SDR, the special drawing right of the IMF. You know, so you got another person that supposedly is in opposition to the unique, the supposed march of the unipolar world order. You know, like uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski speaks in uh, in the, the Grand Chessboard. You know, he's, t- he's telling people, yeah, we should all integrate ourselves into the IMF model. You know, so at the top. There's really no difference between the elites, you know, the people that control the country. There's absolutely no difference. 
as at the lower levels geopolitically, you know, those that that's where we are supposed to to uh, where our perceptions are supposed to be engaged at is at the geopolitical level, and they'll have these uh, fake wars, these fake conflicts, you know, that are genuine to an extent. But they're only genuine to the extent that people believe in them. You know, the general, some generals, some the people in the military that believe that is true because that's what they've been taught. You know, through the Weltanschauung, uh, the worldview that's been manufactured within their each respective uh, reality levels. But at the top, you know, that there's no there's no separation in their perception. You know, there's no separation in the reality. That's one reality, and that's they control the whole system. Yeah, and then, um, like, people that are... I don't, know if I, I don't know if I made myself clear, because I, I think I rambled a little bit because I'm not used to talking about this subject with people, but I hope I made myself clear with that. No, it's good. It was clear. <laughs> Well, anyways, here's a here's a here's a quote in regards to what you guys were talking about Trump and all the elections and all the ideologies. And here's his quote from Jack Little, his book Propaganda, and it says, uh, "This is a way that they, the elites control people. To be alienated means to be someone other, alienist than oneself. It also can mean to belong to someone else." It means to be deprived of oneself, to be subjected to or even identified with someone else. That is definitely the effect of propaganda. Propaganda strips the individual, robs him of himself, and makes him live an alien and artificial life to such an extent that he becomes another person and obeys impulses foreign to him. He obeys someone else. Once again, to produce this effect... Propaganda restricts itself to utilizing, increasing, and reinforcing the individual's inclination to lose himself in something bigger than he is, ideologies, for example, to dissipate his individuality, to free his ego of all doubt, conflict, and suffering, to fusion with others, to devote himself to a great leader and to cut into a great cause. In large groups, man feels united with others, and he therefore tries to free himself by blending with a large group. Indeed, propaganda offers him that possibility in an exceptionally easy and satisfying fashion, but it pushes the individual into the mass until he disappears entirely. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. That's a real good quote right there, man. Um and that's what I was referring to earlier when I was comparing these uh, street protests to rock concerts. It's right. Yeah. It's like the yeah the, the need to be a part of something. And is it because they are um, now they they'll identify with what is what is being communicated by their um, 
by their uh, instigators or their what, provo- provocateurs or whatever they get to get the people riled up now it'll resonate with them on some level you know because uh but it's it's very you know it's very rudimentary it's very it's not there's not a lot of depth to it but it still has this this resonance with them because of you know their it probably has a lot to do with like people's family history you know a lot of people from broken homes they feel like they're kind of this outcast kind of uh, don't really yeah. fit in or they feel like they've been slighted or uh, put out by uh, society. And then uh, with, and, and those are real sentiments. And and the thing is with uh, racism too, like there is uh institutional widespread um, uh, prejudice against people that, that not only black people, but anybody that's different in our, in our culture too. There is that, there is, that is part of our system, you know? And then, so that gets, that gets played upon, and then these uh, these these so-called leaders can come forward and say, "Hey, I feel your pain. I know, I know." And then, so it's going to be something yeah, that's going to speak. It's going to, yeah, this victimization ideal, and this is going to speak to people. It's going to resonate with them, and then they can, and then they could take that energy or that sentiment and um, point out like. Now here is the enemy. Here is the bad guy. This is this Trump individual, even though he hasn't technically done anything other than be this personification of this ideal. He's not even president yet, for one thing. Mm-hmm. I got to make that clear. He's not even in the phony office yeah. of the phony presidency <laughs> yet. You know, it's like, but still, I mean, think think how about how people are reacting to him already. As if he's he's already responsible for the ills that they're that that he cannot even be possibly responsible for, but he's somehow responsible for it. See, it's, this is totally irra- This is absolutely totally irrational. It's not it's not based on anything real or tangible at all. But then you know people are motivated by this to some degree. Now, like I said, there's like the core true believers that are really up all in this stuff, and they get involved. And there's people that get involved just because they need a job and then they kind of identify with this on some, you know, vague level, but they don't really know why. But they say, yeah, I feel like I'm part of something, even though I don't really understand it or like it too much. But, yeah, I'll go along and I'm going to get paid, too. And it's like you see that always brought in is the economic end of it. That's why you see people get paid to go out and march around circles on the street. Because it's it's uh, that that is the prime mover in our society and culture is that you got to make a buck, you got to survive, you know, you got to, uh, yeah, and then part of survival is fitting in with some kind of social order or group. That's that's a survival mechanism too. But see, people are prone yeah, to that because yeah. they're brought up in this artificial construct, and then they they uh, they are vulnerable and susceptible to these manipulations, you know. Well, yeah, because they use uh, multiple factors, you know, social engineering, you know, uh, you know, they use fallacies a lot, you know, they do appeal to emotion, victimization, which you talked about with uh, Tim Kelly in a uh, podcast he did recently about the the transformation of, you know, like the pedophiles being the victims now, and then eventually that, that, that whole range of sexuality, which is very uh, damaging to people, uh, is being uh, normalized, you know. Uh, little by little, so yeah, that's how it works. A lot of different techniques. You can't because because there's no way that you can give a reasoned case for why pedophilia should be normalized. It's it does not going to work that way. You can't 
you can't reason people through it because it's 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 an absurdist position. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. But you but yeah. that's why you have to you have to concoct these narratives that can engage people's emotions and bypass their yeah. critical thinking. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Chris, they, they will bargain over age of consent is what they will do, right? They won't – I mean, so they're not going to – yes, subliminally they're going to try to normalize this stuff through the culture, but legally they will bargain over age of consent. No, they won't, they won't try to legalize pedophilia outright, but don't, you see what I'm getting at here? It will be incremental. No, oh, it's yeah, always incremental, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because uh, Alan Watt uh, speaks about this a lot, that revolutions, that most revolutions are bloodless. You know, that they're, they're more cultural. You know, they, 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 they go by degrees, you know, like the Fabian model. You know, the Fabian society is based on the tactics of the Fabius Maximus, that general in the, in the ancient, ancient Rome, in Roman times that uh, used the strategy, you know, slowly degrade the enemy's capacity to fight. So that's what they're doing. They, you're implementing the Fabian socialist model. You know, they're attacking people at different sites slowly, slowly. What we have in our time that's different because uh, is, is the, the uh, Guy Debord society of the spectacle. We have a media. They can rule... They can manifest cultural hegemony, <clears throat> to borrow Gramsci's, Antonio Gramsci's term, or you know, I could get into the, the Frankfurt School and their understanding of the long march through the institution. Yeah, yeah, Frankfurt School, that's a big one. That, that, when, that in the post-scarcity society, post-industrial society, you want cultural hegemony. Even in modern society generally, you want cultural hegemony. Actually, cultural hegemony really goes back to ancient... I mean, it... it it's a persistent theme all the way through. If you can dominate the cultural narrative, then you can rule people without having to use coercion, outright manifest coercion. You can do it yeah. conveniently. You can do it smoothly. Silent weapons for quiet wars. Now, it put me in mind of Trump's statement to – and in society, this spectacle, you always have cults of personality, right, around the media celebrities. It put me in mind of – Trump's statement uh, to Billy Bush about when you're a rock star, you, you get whatever you want, you can get away with anything, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, this is not to be too tendentious about it, but we recall uh, the Pink Floyd, the, the movie Pink Floyd, The Wall, mm -hmm. uh, which is making precisely that point that you see this mob. Uh, you know, sort of highly collectivized, highly, read, you know, hysterical crowd of youth idealizing, what's his name, Pink, the, the uh, you know, the rock star hero. And, and, and that's the, you know, that's the point, very much the point of the film, what it's, that it's not, you know, it's not such a novel idea. I think, I think people see this. They see how this works. But I don't know. I think it's shallow. I don't think, I don't think. You don't have the kind of personalities now that people would be willing to die for. I don't think anybody's willing to get out in the streets and die for Donald Trump. They would get out in the streets and die for Caesar or Pompey, you know, but they, would, they won't get out in the streets and die for Donald Trump. So his following is it's broad, but it's shallow. And what's going to happen is it's going to wear thin very quickly as one – Demographic sector after another fall sees his broken promises to them, 
the one the one we should be emphasizing the most is his promise to prosecute the Clintons and the other miscreants and criminals in and around the Obama White House. He promised people would go to jail if if he if he gives them a pass. Then then that's that's it. Prima facie, he's a sellout. He's he's a liar. That that's no way. Yeah, he a, said uh, that he was not going to pursue any charges against Clinton. <laughs> well, that 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 means he's going to allow. These are some terrible crimes that have been committed. He said so himself. On the he got up there on that debate platform and identified these as serious criminal, ongoing criminal enterprises, and he talked about networks of corruption. And now he's going to say, "Well, it's all forgiven." I don't think that's going to fly. I don't think it's going to fly. People are going to demand a sacrifice. They're going to demand a poison container, someone to pour all their their frustration and failure and hatred into. Someone's got to be yeah. scapegoated. And, and that's going to fall into the left-right paradigm because that's the way that they're using that narrative right now with Trump versus Clinton, you know. Trump is not the evil person. Clinton is the is a clean, you know, you know the clean uh, loser. You know how, how to explain this. Basically, they're going to set up what a possibly a, is a civil war in the United States between the left and the right. They're going to use that old dialectic, and they're now, now going to start using it like really to to create another second civil war. And you know, and you got people like George Soros funding the the, the those protesters. Oh, 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 and those different cities. So he, they're using like what Patrick Kennison calls the, the purple revolution, you know, the color revolutions that they're using in other countries to destabilize it. So now it looks like the elite are going to start doing that to the United States now. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think that's that, that's what they're going to do. And they're also they'll play the race card too. They'll play the race card and they'll play the immigrant. You know, the undocumented immigrant against the the native. They'll play that. Yeah. They'll play the gender card if they can get away with that. They'll play any card, you know, any way they can manipulate the population. Yeah. Well, I, the way I see things playing out is that they're going to, um, they're going to use this. He's a front man uh, to really uh, com- completely dismantle uh, right wing politics in general i think to to delegitimize delegitimize it well that will delegitimize nationalism that will delegitimize national identity and nationalism right yeah i think that's what it's it's designed it's designed to do like he he, i I think that it's going to end up and this is all scripted you know mind you that it's going to he's going to be like a abysmal failure and he's going to go down in history as that and that's going to uh uh it's going to be really going to um set up set up the it's a setup it's a setup for the for the right wing to be to completely discredited or be largely discredited because um i i think uh, cuz you're hearing this stuff too out there and these analysis of this, and they and, and they're saying they're saying basically the same thing. Uh, what was that, uh, um, John? We were talking about that Zizek guy, and he he was basically saying the same thing when I listened to a couple of his uh, his talks. And, oh, they will uh, deploy the left. They will deploy the left to. Uh, what was he saying? 
Well, you're saying that Trump, uh, he would rather see Trump in there than Bernie Sanders because uh, th- that's what Trump is going <laughs> to eventually do. He's going to completely uh, ruin, or I don't know his exact words, but so many words. It's, yeah, it's going to um, ruin the whole right wing. It's going to. Yeah, that's what Susan Sarandon said to on an interview. Trump oh, is to bring in Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is coming in with Trump's practice. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, yeah, that's the the plan, or you know, not the plan, but the what they'll resort to is is that Trump will make everybody so mad that they'll beg for a socialist revolution. Yeah, I could see that. Oh, I could see that happening so easily. They've got a ready-made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you think about it, it'll be the ultimate, the ultimate vindication of the left. Yeah, that's how they'll vindicate the left. Is they'll have this. Uh, oh God, this reality TV star fall flat on his face. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> how it works out in wrestling too. It's the same kind of <laughs> process. Yeah. And then they're gonna be, oh, see, we told you so. Should have voted. Yeah, but in, 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 in wrestling, it's not usually the communists who win, is it? <laughs> yeah, and Donald Trump was on uh, that that uh, wrestling show, right? <laughs> oh yeah, he was sucked up with yeah. Vince McMahon in that crowd. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I posted. They that, understand. Uh, oh, they <laughs> they oh they they have thoroughly internalized uh, Guy Debord's society of the spectacle. They know they know what it's all about. Those guys. Yeah. The Mino, well, Lewin's medium is the message, a massage, whatever. <laughs> Donald Trump's son makes pizza jumpsuits for Katy Perry, literally. Are you serious? Literally. I literally, I got that in my database. Wait a minute now. Wait a minute now. You, you did say pizza, didn't you? <laughs> I didn't mishear that, did I? <laughs> no, you misheard the person, though. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger. His son makes pizza suits for Kitty Petty. No, really. I'm not even kidding you. Are you serious? Wow. I swear on I swear on my charcoal. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger's son makes pizza suits. Oh my god. Pizza he swears on his ping pong table. <laughs> yeah. I'm I, I dig facts and spit knowledge and there you go. <laughs> and just another little fact, we we're talking about the age of consent, and you're totally right in but the thing is, like, the age of consent has been bent forever. So if we look a little history in Vatican City, that has been the age of 12. Yeah, well. That's not true. until 2013, I believe, yeah. and they jumped it up due to all the scandals. So well, in the Middle Ages, that, now, but, you know, in the Middle Ages. Hundreds of years of 12 and under sex has been okay, you know. So, well. you know, we're working on it. <laughs> well, but we had a shorter lifespan. Well, that fits in with the Jesuit line, though. What was the lifespan in medieval times? I mean, people were married and betrothed at 11 or 12 or 13, but lifespans were shorter then. I mean, our notion of uh, adolescence is a, is a complete modern invention. I think Bernays might have started adolescence or teenager. Or... Well, it all, it all went back to agrarian society, right? Right. The, so the age of a woman was when she came into her cycle, and when she came into her cycle, you know, the father uh, kept her under his wing until someone came and 
when they married her, they took her off and had sex with her, and that's how they got right. married. So they didn't they didn't need a license or a preacher to marry them. They they like consummated their relationship with sex. So and the father was like, "Hey, all right, we 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 got rid of a lovely uh, Lolita here. You know, she went off with uh, George, and they're going to make a farm together and have kids. And you know, that's just how it went. So that, that's Wait. why they had their shotgun weddings, right? If you took uh, took the farmer's daughter out, uh, you know, you were pretty much stuck with her if you uh, had sex with her. So <laughs> you just married her, bro. So good luck." Is this Damon? Yeah, this is Damon. Hey, man, how you doing? Long time, no no speak. I know, man. I've changed jobs, and I've been just uh, dying on the vine. Had to get rid of my goats. Just too much work, and changing my farm into a tree farm, and broke down tractors, broke down trucks. just never ends. And... Wow. But, but I've been catching all your podcasts. That's, that's uh, what keeps me going out when I'm working in the field or working on the trucks or driving home from work. So uh, I've, I've been around just in the background, way in the background. Well, glad you called in, man. Cool. Glad to yeah. hear you're doing good, too. Yeah, that's doing good, cool. man. Just trying to keep everybody fed, fat, and happy, you know. Yeah, I imagine that's a lot of uh, a lot of doing. A lot of mouths to feed over here. So. How many uh, How many children you have? Uh, it's like, well, say since the last time we talked, I think we've added one. We're up to eight now, so. Oh, right on. Yeah. World domination, one child at a time. That's what I tell everybody. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's, uh, you're really doing something. You're, you're uh, yeah, that's how you take it. Well, yeah, that's how you take over the world. Keep having yeah. kids. But, you know, hey, if you can't beat them, uh, you overpopulate them. <laughs> I think John, his goal, what did you say your goal was, John? You're going to have like 10 kids or something like that you're working on? Yeah, before, well, I'm going to be 40, so hopefully before I'm 60. <laughs> hey, man, you got you. Have, <laughs> have, a, have a son when you're like 70 like you have. Hey, if you're Mormon, you can make this go faster, John. Oh, yeah. Well, well, if I was Mormon, then I wouldn't have to worry about it because transhumanism is going to be able to help me stay alive. Just yeah. don't get them. Don't get them vaccinated. Whatever you do, don't get them vaccinated. I think I think mm-hmm. Muslims believe in polygamy, no way. Too, don't they? What's that? I said Muslims believe in, believe in a polygamy as well. I believe some some branches of Muslims, I guess. Well, yeah, Islam allows up to four up to four wives, although Muhammad had many more because he was exceptional. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a for-profit, C-R-O-F-I-T, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, I, I don't know, I've done a lot of research about Muhammad because uh, I met this nice person in college and convinced me that Islam was the way to go, and I thought, I better look into this Muhammad guy. So, What's interesting about Muhammad is so much secular history, so you have... You have uh, you have religious the Muslim version of Muhammad, and then you have secular history's version of Muhammad, and then you have um, Christianity's version of Muhammad, and somewhere mm-hmm. between is the truth. And once you harmonize it all, I mean, to me, I don't think he was real. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's I mean, that's a good point. I don't think he existed. Sean Stone believes in Muhammad. So who's that? Sean Stone's a Muslim. Helen Burstyn's a Muslim. 
So how did you, how did you reach the conclusion that Muhammad uh, wasn't even a real person? Um, I mean, you're just basing that based off what we see today, like in, in the way media is. Uh, I have to say, I have to interject. I've been doing some reading on just this subject, including the Arab conquest of Egypt and going back to Edward Gibbon and others. And it is very, very hazy. The accounts of this figure in his life are very, very hazy, very contradictory. We do have some documents, like for example, we know that they sent an embassy to the Byzantine emperor, and we have a cop. We allegedly, ostensibly, we have a a version of that of the correspondence that occurred between them. Um, yeah. And it, and in fact, that the Byzantine emperor also sent uh, someone from uh, a woman from his court to uh, who became known as Christian Mary, who who yeah, lived. But they don't even know that that's actually Muhammad. The that the Quran is talking over, you know, the problem. Well, the earliest codification we have of the Quran isn't until about what the 10th century. So mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. again, you know, we're it's it's we don't really, you know. Well, so, so what, John? What you're saying, maybe? I mean, I, I could accept it on these terms. Like, so for instance, uh, Ronald Reagan wasn't really Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States, because he really didn't have any real power. I mean, he's He's basically a puppeteer. He was a real person, and his personality that they portrayed in the media was no, Reagan I, that we're told. So, are you saying he was didn't even exist as like a real person at all? No, um, actually, there's a really good book written by like a neocon guy. I think I think I think his name's Robert Spencer. Yeah, right. Jihad. He runs a website called Jihad Watch. Right, he wrote, but he wrote a really good book called um, "Did Muhammad Exist?" Yeah, okay. And um, he goes through it piece by piece, like in pretty good detail, like where you can't even really prove that he existed at all. Right. Let's caveat this by first saying that you cannot prove that King David or King Solomon existed. There is absolutely not a shred of corroborative evidence. I, I agree. I agree with those as well. Yeah. Right, and of course we have Joseph Atwill, who is telling us that the Jesus of the Gospel narrative is essentially a sort of a compo- fictional composite figure. Of, I don't agree with his analysis, though. Well, I, there's a lot. Well, let me ask this uh, question here. Does Donald, does Donald Trump exist? <laughs> Which Donald Trump? The reality well, that, well, see, that's star, not e- well, you could say Bob on one Trump level, it's like, yeah. no, he doesn't exist because that's not even his name. His name is Drump, <laughs> D-R-U-M-P. Ph or something like that. So, what else don't you know about this individual? And so, right. what what you're seeing is that is that a real person or is that somebody playing a character role? Right. Do you know? So that's a good. Yeah, that's, that's actually true. a good question. Is does he does this Trump persona actually exist, or is he is he a piece of performance art like like in that in that video I posted up saying that he's. He's performance. His his he's an act. He's a piece of performance art. That's what yeah, it did said. You know, did you know Pizza Hut hired Donald Trump to do a Pizza Hut commercial with Ivana Trump? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta go really? see this. It's a trip. <laughs> Hilarious. It, it, it was back when they first got married to, and I guess his prenup was all in the uh, in ah. the papers and stuff. And and I guess the joke was when she went to get another piece of pizza, he said, "You only get half." 
and he's talking about half the pizza, but he's really talking about half his empire. Oh, you know, their pizzas are so mediocre. <laughs> but not not to distract us from the topic because this is a great topic. So yeah, I think I, I think Muhammad. I mean, based on the stuff I looked at, I think Muhammad was real. But I'm accepting authority, right? So I mean, there's a lot of authority that I'm accepting to believe that reality. Uh, it's easy for me to believe too that Muhammad was a created personality, and he was a real person, but he was just created. In this book called the Quran, Quran isn't it? But it feels so right. Then it's a deal. Yes, we eat our pizza the wrong way. Crust first. Introducing stuffed crust pizza crust from Pizza Hut. With a ring of cheese baked into a totally new thinner crust, you'll want to eat it the wrong way. Crust first. I have the last slice. Actually, you're only entitled to half. Large is nine ninety nine. How did you find uh, that up so fast? That was great, Chris, or whoever did that. Uh, it's one of our sponsors. I just picked up. I just, <laughs> This place. Wow. It's on autopilot. I can't control it. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that one when I saw that. That one so, and the one of Trump and uh, Trump and Giuliani and uh, Giuliani and Drag and uh, I don't know Bloomingdale's or Saks or one of the, Have you guys seen that one? <laughs> that one? Yeah. That's another Trump. Yeah, actually, 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 Chris was able to cue that up for Pizza Hut because we have a we have a network that. Um, Tim Alvarado runs, and we're all um, we're all underlings of him. He he has an empire, an empire of uh, shills that we're all part of. we're all five of Wait, who is accusing Chris of being a shill again? Oh yeah, the most can- cancelled lies. I saw that video. Right? Is that the name of the guy, uh, Chris? Uh yeah. But the name of the not not his name, obviously, but the name of Blogger. Uh, Mm-hmm. Chris's uh, alter ego is Bob Schillen. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I could I could accept that uh, Muhammad didn't exist, and I could also accept that he just existed as a personality that personality that was written about to influence people. I mean, I mean that's what basically what perception management is, and that's what we see happening today, where you get these characters and they're they're basically uh, prognosticating ideals and philosophies to us, and yeah. Because every culture, every civilization uh, has a mythos behind it, you know? Yeah. So, so, so every here that you see in history, most of it really is, uh, you know, it's it's, uh, it's a creation by other people that are behind it. You know, groups like, like most people see Shakespeare being written by multiple people, and uh, I think Francis Bacon, too, is, uh, I think people are saying that he probably is written by a multiple uh, groups of people, you know? Like a group Francis of people. Francis Bacon was multiple people. Huh? Francis Bacon was multiple people. Okay. And they yeah, was but, also you know, uh, Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Shakespeare and... Uh, no, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. That a lot of people are starting to uh, uh, see that, you know, probably all these, uh, some of the authors before, you know, like Shakespeare or, or, or Francis Bacon or others, they're also constructs by a group of people. You know, so basically, there, there's a group of people behind every civilization that create a mythos for them to project onto the people while the, they stay hidden behind in the scenes. I think. Yeah, well, there's like uh, these that, personas are just like containers of ideas, yeah. kind of like where I, I wondered about yeah. Tesla. I mean, is he is he one of those or? Uh, it, because the way he 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 was kind of this presenter of uh, 
spearheading this idea because at, at that time when he was around, it was just like this, you know, uh, the wonders of technology, and that was really being played up heavily. And then he, he kind of come along at this at the ideal time, and he's sort of this super genius, and he's sort of this uh, dapper looking fellow that you know dresses nice, and he has this um, you know impressive presentation about you know persona about him and everything, and then. You know, he just busts up on the scene, and he's he's demonstrating all this wild technology and all this stuff at a very yeah. opportune time in history. You know what I mean? You know the the timing of it. Yeah, yeah. The Tesla persona coming up on the scene. Yeah, Muhammad was probably inserted into history for the purpose of creating. You know, you know, years years and years later, giving people. Um, the Islamic, you know, the Islamic wars and the takeovers and all that stuff. So he was the reason. He was the reason for the for the later wars. He was the the legend, you know, the myth that people were fighting for. Yeah. Question of reality says Tesla loved eugenics. Huh, I didn't know that. That would have surprised me. But yeah, that's what people that we think of people in terms of these leaders or figures. That, uh, but but I, I look at them more now as like a, you know they're 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 just representations of something. You know, it's like Gandhi. Like you know, it's, it's so it's like his name now is sort of synonymous with uh, peaceful resistance or something like that. But then you know you look at to who he was actually working for and all that, and he's like. Yeah, uh, he, he wasn't what he was presented to be. So in, in that sense, he didn't really exist. He was just this sort of actor playing this role. And then he was engaged in different sort of street theater operations that were. And then then this mm. whole kind of narrative is created swirling around this this persona that's created for the purposes of, of, of propaganda for some reason. And then that's then like then that way you can attach all these ideas to this, this, this person or this individual. And it, 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 it's like I was saying, it's kind of like a container of, for ideas. This is like Mar- Martin Luther King or Kennedy or any of these personas, which that's why I say personas. I don't, cause I don't know who they really were. I, I think, I, I think they're most likely just actors that, um, yeah. and, and it's like Trump, you know, you, you could clearly see that he's an actor and then he's and and he, he says certain things for certain uh, deliberate effect, not because he believes in them, but because those are the, the right say, right things to say at this particular moment in time that's going to you know push people's buttons, resonate with people, or whatever. But he's he, he, but he is not what he's presenting himself to be, unless you know. But you see, you have to get into his mind to un, to know that for sure. So it's like I, so. I with that said. Uh, I can only go by what I suspect when that, that he is just acting a role just like he was acting when he was uh, shaving Vince McMahon's hair bald in the, you know, the, the showdown of the billionaires of WWE in 2005 or six or whenever Don, that was. Don you see Trump, like I said uh, before, you see Trump in his interviews uh, in the eighties, you know, there's one that people can readily find in YouTube. You know, he's his talking points in this current camp. You know, in, in the campaign he did right now for the presidency, his talking points were prepared 
30 years, almost 30 years ago. You can People can watch that video. Exact talking point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what, what, how do you find it? It's the Oprah interview. Yeah, Oprah, uh, Oprah Winfrey, uh, 1988. Uh, you can find uh, the, the, the video on YouTube. It's readily, readily available. I was saying Gandhi, Gandhi and Martin Luther King succeeded in getting people to do exactly what <laughs> powers that be wanted them to do. Yep. I did my research on Gandhi recently. It's even worse off, you know. It's it's under the control of what? Multinational corporations. You got Monsanto going there, exploiting the people. So there really wasn't any change after Gandhi. And that goes for a lot of countries where these uh, personas are elevated. They supposedly uh, start changing the system or whatever, but a few decades later, you know, they're in the shit or even worse. No, Gandhi no, no, no. helped uh, draft soldiers for uh, Lord Mountbatten for combat when he previously drafted <laughs> soldiers for uh, ambulance help, ambulatory care. Uh, Lord Mountbatten uh, approached him and uh, uh, convinced Gandhi to draft soldiers for combat. I did a lot of research yeah, on Gandhi and his assassin recently for this, uh, for actually a guy you guys posted, um, Ali Damigard. He, he references Gandhi as a good guy. So I got in contact with those Brits and gave him a little essay on Gandhi and his assassin. And it's, it's completely, completely face up rigged. If you just take the Wikipedia, even rabbit hole, Gandhi went to like <clears throat> communist school, London school of economics. He was, the he was trained at too. the Inn of Courts, and the Inn of Courts is like the the most elite law barrister producing thing in the uh, uh, United Kingdom. So you so you and, think, uh, so you think Gandhi worked for the British then? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I absolutely. There's there's tons of you know, yeah, tons of yeah. what I consider evidence, but it's all circumstantial. But yeah, it's. It's real face up. You can just do a blue link click search through Gandhi's history and just through Wikipedia, I call them blue link click searches and you'll find a story that you're going to never knew. Like I said, I didn't know he drafted people for combat, but even his little Wikipedia says he drafted people for combat. That's not Gandhi. You know, he's connected. He's from, he's connected to well, that, the yeah, that's, not the media, that's not the media perception that they sold us of who he was, especially Absolutely. In, in history. I mean, what we've been told in our history books, uh, it, he's like an earworm too, because after Gandhi's gone, then the, the uh, Indira Gandhi family have been a dynasty ever since. So he was kind of like an earworm as well, you know. It's like Gandhi, Gandhi. Okay, here's some Gandhis. Let's put them in. And um, if you look at his assassin, his assassin was actually uh, linked with this group called the RSS, which actually worked hand in hand and had connections to Mussolini and Hitler. Um, so you got like a dialectic here, you know, like you got, it's probably bullshit and fake, but you got a dialectic there. Uh, you look at the, uh, the, and they're all Hindu nationalists and the Hindu nationalists were fighting, um, against the Muslims. They were being nationalists towards Muslims and Gandhi yeah. was stepping in defending Muslims, you know, Gandhi saving Muslims then. Um, and then his assassin was forced to, uh, act and dress and present himself as a girl his first uh, chunk of his childhood because of a curse his family thought he had. So we got a, an assassin who was like cross-dressed from birth 
till a family curse lifted and another son was born and he was act, able to act like a man again. Then he joins the nationalist RSS, which has links to Mussolini and Hitler. And then uh, he goes and kills Gandhi, shoots him three times. And uh, here we go. We got a dialectic. Wow. Mm. And you can get all that through a blue link clicking search of just roaming around in Wikipedia. So I'm not saying it's true, but I'm saying I've never heard those stories and I never looked for those stories. And now that you just look, it's just like, wow, that's unbelievable. Just yeah. go, through his, go through his history at, at the end of courts. And that's that should be enough. You know, he was a barrister for the end of courts, period. Like that should be enough to sell us that he worked for him. It should be enough that he drafted soldiers for Lord Montbatten, you know, like... Let's go. The, the other put thing put is down is the heroes. That, There's no heroes. The other thing is, is that what he did by create. You see, what revolutions do is they create a separation, and then out of that separation, you get the synthesis that you're that's desired, and that's exactly what happened. Was a further integration of British culture and Indian culture together. It's not. British overtaking Indian or Indian overtaking British. It's the synthesis of the two and it's the doing away with of the previous cultures. And that's what Gandhi succeeded in doing. And one more thing that's super crucial that I totally forgot. Look at who got Gandhi going. It was the Theosophist, Wikipedia. The Theosophist got Gandhi going. So let's just like if anybody can visualize the theosophy symbol, it's like a um, Star of David, a swastika, <laughs> you know, like, so that's the Hindu symbol. That's the, that's the, so that's a, a Hindu national symbol. That's a German national symbol, both connected to theosophy. And for me, that's, that's where you look. Theosophy. Those are the guys who started Gandhi on his way. His start was with theosophy, literally. So the guy who assassinated Gandhi, his name is Godsey. G-O-D-S-E? No, his name is, um... Uh, it's, uh, Nathuram Vinayak... Oh, yeah, Godsey, excuse me. Yes, sir. I... All right. Uh, yeah, thanks, everybody, for coming out. Yeah, I hate to cut you off, but, uh, gotta close up shop and, uh, gotta, gotta keep the file size down low because, uh, I'm gonna have real issues uploading it, but, uh, yeah, thanks everybody for coming on the call. Uh, yeah, check out hoaxbusterscall.com for more information. Hopefully do this again uh, Monday night and then we can continue this real interesting discussion we had here about, uh, about Gandhi and, uh, yeah, about these world leaders, world figures and, and, uh, what they really represent. So I, yeah, I think it's a worthwhile discussion there. It's pretty interesting stuff. Um, yeah, we got a close up shop here. Looking at this file size, man, it's going to get real big. But anyway, uh, y'all take care. Have a good night and hopefully, uh, talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Hoaxbusters call. You can subscribe to the podcast at hoaxbusterscall.com. Support the Hoaxbusters call by rating it on iTunes, sharing it on social media, by 
fire off a donation at hoaxbusterscall.com. Conspicuous graffiti in public places. Hoaxbusters Call. Conspiracy. Just theory. is unique. One of the largest independent television and movie studios in America in 2002 created strategic operations and changed the face of training, simulation, and education. Strategic operations introduced the magic of Hollywood to live military and public safety training, transforming sterile training environments into dynamic recreations of any real-world situation that could be imagined. TV and movie special effects artists create realistic battlefield effects, including rocket-propelled grenades, mines, and explosions from improvised explosive devices. Smoke, sound, and smell add the highest level of realism safely to simulate the fog of war. Professional role players who know diverse cultures and languages help simulate various areas of the world. The level of fidelity achieved in training is so high that those who are immersed in it call this hyper-realistic training. For those preparing for the real world, whether on the battlefield, at accidents on the highway, or trauma in the emergency department or operating room. It becomes stress inoculation. And one big fake. 